All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Break the Rules stream. I'm your host, Lev Polyakov, at LevPo on Twitter, L-E-V-P-O on Twitter. It is a great pleasure to be here with uh, Huntsman, a.k.a. C. Kennedy. And uh, I want to first, well, first of all, you are a senior fellow for the Security Studies Group. Uh, you are an expert on logistics, uh, supply chains, uh, all that very interesting stuff. And you are also a friend of David Reboy, who is also part of uh, that group, correct? Yeah. So, um, and I can just use my name as Ross, but uh, um, I kind of outed myself here a few months ago. But um, yeah, so uh, I've been a part of a security studies group since uh, early to middle part of last year. Uh, primary emphasis on, you know, contributing and, and sort of furthering discussion towards uh, not only what does an America first sort of logistics and supply chain policy look like, but also uh, do a little bit more about helping the world kind of understand how the interconnectedness of supply chains has driven a lot of benefits uh, to us, uh, but has also exposed us to some weaknesses that maybe we wouldn't have had otherwise if, if we had, uh, you know, more of a uh, domestic, robust manufacturing policy as opposed to a very sort of globalized uh, economic and supply chain uh, paradigm. So it's been uh, it's been a great experience. It's been a great honor. Uh, Jim Hansen's a big part of that as well, uh, and Brad Patty. So there's uh, some really phenomenal minds associated with that group, doing good things within the group, but also, uh, you know, outside of the think tank environment and in the real world. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely uh, humbling to be a part of that group. Now, why did you become a part of that group in the first place? And also, are you an actual huntsman? <laughs> I do, I do, uh, I do hunt. Actually, I do hunt um, uh, mainly deer, and uh, but being you know here a Midwest boy and things like that, that tends to be a lot of what we're doing. Um, but uh, so yeah, I do hunt. Uh, I do, uh, I do stalk. I do you know work out of uh, tree blinds or hunt from the ground, things like that. So I try not to. Uh, I don't ever hunt over bait. I don't ever uh, make it too easy on myself. It, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't feel right or ethical or uh, in alignment with uh, God's law, so to speak. If uh, you know, if I make it too easy, um, got involved with Security Studies Group. Uh, very, uh, very strong group of minds. Very diverse set of minds and perspectives uh, within the team, and have always been very interested in what can we do from a grand strategy standpoint as the United States to continue to further our interests uh, in the world while at the same time uh, really kind of following that rule of no but no work percentage. And uh, I think uh, there's a bit of a, uh, oh, I think there's a bit of a delay, but anyway, uh, hopefully that's going to pass. When it comes to uh, being in this uh, security studies uh, group, do you view in a way like you were talking about hunting, that there has to be a certain balance to be maintained, that when it comes to the relationship that's between the United States and China right now, some things may be a little bit uh, mm -hmm. off balance in that same sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's uh, there is a, there is almost a toxic interdependence uh, between the two countries, and and I say toxic in the sense of while we are able, we're so tightly interlocked with their with their economy and their manufacturing base, and they with our money um, and with the environment of security provided in the global commons that any sort of any sort of divorce so to speak or any sort of attempt to shift the balance back and forth and and try to uh, and try to find maybe some detente is is going to be very much zero sum to somebody uh so we do not have a healthy interdependence on one another 
And perhaps there are things we could do to rein that in or bring that in. Uh, but really since the 1990s, China has followed, quietly followed, but now a lot more loudly in the last, I'd say five to 10 years, has followed a doctrine of civil military fusion. Uh, so it is not possible for a company who is manufacturing in China and exporting to an importer in the United States, a shipbuilder in China who's building uh, a ship for CMACGM, which is a French company. Uh, it's not possible for them to engage in pure commercial activity without also being mandated to serve the interests of the Chinese Communist Party. And so everything that they do, whether we want to or not uh, admit this, is inflected with if for whatever reason, and you can't protest, if for whatever reason you are called upon within your capacity or role as a Chinese company to serve the interests of the CCP, they will tell you to do it, you will do it. And if you don't, you will go the same path that we've seen Jack Ma say follow uh, over the last few months. Um, in the United States, we are, and this I don't think is controversial to say, we are a sort of the inverse in a lot of ways of China where the 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 capitalistic need the capitalistic capability base serves the political master and in the united states in a great many ways it is the opposite as the political masters who serve the financial and economic and manufacturing interests in the united states um is congress powerful absolutely congress is extremely powerful right and they are one of the you know triune branches of government uh, but i don't think there's anybody that can dispute that uh amazon or apple Microsoft or Google in a great many ways in terms of the impact to our day-to-day -day life holds the real power. They hold the cards. And we will see the interests of Washington, D.C. and the 202 area code serve in a lot of ways the interests of, you know, I'd say the top Wall Street firms, but certainly uh, your big banks, your big everything in the United States. Um, so when you have a situation where one government has chosen to weaponize the private sector against a country that by and large has built its power base upon uh, the private sector with some influence and regulatory capture from the government domain, what you have is, is an, an impossible circle to square where there cannot be any decoupling, there cannot be any economic growth any longer without there being some really extreme pain to uh, some sector of the economy, both economies really. While uh, he's not here right now, we had a conversation uh, previously, a very spicy one, with this guy named uh, Logo Diadolus, who was uh, talking about how if America pri America's priority right now with all of these different Wall Street firms and all these different companies is to make as much money as possible, to squeeze every uh, dime out of the American uh, populace to get rid of the middle class, he thinks that uh, China, and I know he's not really here to defend himself, so I don't want to go... Uh, too hard but basically like he thinks that china the government there especially xi jinping who he considers to be the uh you know the best ruler that we've had in an incredibly long amount of time in history that uh mm -hmm. he has a certain responsibility towards the chinese people and everything that's being done is for the good of the chinese people so that they would have a better quality of life I don't speak Mandarin. I don't live in China. The closest thing is that I did have a uh, Chinese ex-girlfriend from Beijing, so I got a little bit of uh, I got a little bit a little bit of an you opportunity to, her, to man. You're gonna need her to uh, speak the lingua franca of half the world. 
Oh man, you're probably right, but listen, it was too much at that point for me to be able to uh, stand. I don't want to get into details, but I think that certain qualities that, who knows, maybe they skewed me away from <laughs> looking at China as being a benevolent force for good, but certain qualities, even in the way mm -hmm. that she... Uh, conducted herself over time they kind of started seeping out and it was very different by the way than my second chinese girlfriend who i had right afterwards uh who was actually from georgia and her parents were from mainland china they emigrated to the united states and i think it was because they were so damn strict with her all the time very punishing that she ended up going 180 and she was the complete opposite of my uh, f uh f first chinese ex so in a way i see that there is this element of authoritarianism that i don't think it's that uh healthy for people to live under uh, that kind of a uh, state but then again what do i know so Tell me, I know it's a little bit further away from logistics and shipping, but from uh, what you were able to get, what is the general consensus of uh, quality of life, but also just the mindset that uh, Chinese uh, people that you were able to speak with who have lived in mainland China, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, possess? <clears throat> That's a great question. Uh, it's also a really loaded question, right? Uh, especially since I still have active business interests in a great number of uh, parts of China, as well as Southeast Asia and India and, you know, other far-flung parts of the world. But um, the, the, the simplest, most straightforward way to answer that question is if I'm in the United States and someone asks me a very point-blank question that could be perceived uh, when I answer to be critical of the regime or to be critical of the ruling class, am I going to censor myself or am I just going to be able to say whatever the hell I want? And then if I go abroad, am I going to censor myself, be able to say whatever the hell I want? And the answer is probably going to be largely similar. I can, I can kind of sort of say whatever I want. If I'm in China and all of my communications are tied into uh, Chinese telecommunication networks, Chinese apps, uh, phone calls that are being conducted. Um, and I frequently have phone calls with China. You know, it's, it's multiple times a week. I'm, I'm having to make those phone calls over things like WeChat or whatever it may be. And there is a very palpable tension and awareness that what you say can and will be used against you outside of a court of law if, you, if, if the issue decides to be pressed. Uh, China has a pervasive security apparatus. Uh, it, it inflects every part of how the society functions, particularly from the business standpoint, uh, particularly when you're dealing with Westerners like Americans, there is a very, very friendly, but uh, underlying paranoia almost over what can I say? What can I not say? And I will, I will tell you that if you can get a great number of Chinese nationals at all levels of society, whether they come from uh, the working class or they come from, you know, maybe one of the upper crust class, like, you know, business owners and things like that, uh, even party officials, if you get them outside of China, if you get them in an environment where they feel a little bit more comfortable to speak their minds, you may get a very different take. Uh, you may get a very different set of answers. Uh, and, and it is a very interesting dynamic to see. Um, it surprised me, you know, when I was younger and just kind of getting into the business world and doing a lot of business with China, particularly in the agriculture domain, um, I'd have to talk to the to the traders while they were, you know, living at some level within the, the sphere of control. And this was in the early 2000s. This was before 
in a lot of ways the world really understood what was going on and then they would come over here and i would hear completely different stories from the exact same people or different shades of the story that would contextualize things there are a lot of chinese who are um who are nationalists and proudly so and that's okay that is absolutely okay i i think the world is better when people anchor themselves in in a sense of higher ideological purpose uh, to a, a homeland or to a tribe uh, or to a community. But you have to have something that grounds you beyond fundamental, pure, self-serving self-interest. Um, so that is the good thing. I don't mind that um, that a great number of that a great number of Chinese citizens have that very strong nationalistic fervor. Where I take issue with it, in the same way I take issue with um, on the U.S. side, is that sense of okay, I'm there's I'm proud of my country. I want my country to be great. I want my country to be successful and to do big things and to be very powerful in the world. Then there is, I think, everything in the world and everybody in the world should bend to the will of my country. And I take issue with that when the United States does it. Uh, I take issue with that when. You know, uh, Europe, either uh, individual countries within Europe or the greater, you know, Eurosphere. I take issue with it when China does it or Russia does it. I want to see, I want to see a a cooling of relations between PRC and between the U.S. But at the same time, I recognize that if they decide to continue bullying the world, whether it's through commerce or through uh, overt militarism or through gray zone sort of behaviors, which, you know, I talk a lot about publicly, that somebody somehow is able to stand against that and say, we're going to draw a line here. You are not going to engage in these behaviors and these hostilities or in these, you know, malignant sort of uh, stratagems. And at the same time, we're not going to engage in similar things against you. That's very Pollyanna-ish, I know. Um, But it should be the goal even though we recognize that we'll never get there. And so to the extent that we can, we want to be able to use the tools that we have at hand, the mechanisms of the American economy, the mechanisms of the Chinese economy to find ways to work together and stay at that below threshold level uh, of conflict and, and tension. And they can be proud of their country. I can be proud of ours. And at the same time, we should still theoretically be able to find ways to work together. I definitely hope we we could theoretically find ways to work together. But before that, quick question. The chat's been uh, uh, wondering, what exactly are you wearing? Is it a karate G? No, it's just a, uh, it's like an Under Armour, like pullover. Okay, there we go. For whatever reason. (laughs) Yeah. So don't, so, so chat, Gio may not be here, but don't say I never, uh, I never do good things for you. Okay. I listen to the chat. I listen to what you guys have to say. And by the way, all the new people who are watching this, don't forget to subscribe, subscribe and keep subscribing. Patreon.com slash break the rules. Anyway, what uh, concerns me more about China is that let's say under Deng Xiaoping, he initiated the policy of there being term limits. I believe it was around 10 years or so. And now that is not the case anymore. Again, I have not really gotten into the nitty-gritty of how exactly Xi Jinping is operating things over there. But my concern, again, is that dictators do have a tendency over time to start getting a little bit comfy in being in that position, especially if you're somebody who completely gets rid of term limits, then I don't think you're somebody who Mm -hmm. wants to go away. And when you keep staying there, 
I think that there would be a tendency to start rotting from the inside, surrounding yourself by a lot of uh, butt kissers over time, by a lot of brown nosers, and as a result, a lot of the things that maybe Deng Xiaoping rightfully did, and China may still be benefiting from, may start going into a downward spiral. Again, that's just an opinion, but uh, are there any are there anything are there any things that are going on on the ground that would lead me to believe that or no? So what what Xi Jinping has managed to to do very effectively is to convince a great number of people that it is in their best interest that he remain in charge uh, from a nationalistic standpoint, from an economic standpoint. Uh, and, and those who don't subscribe to it, by and large, go along with it anyway. And there is a very there is a very strong, intense desire uh, to survive in every human being. And if you've created a paradigm where you, you when you're when you're having almost run game theory with yourself constantly, if I say this, if I do this thing or whatever, what is the consequences going to be? By and large in America, we don't really think in terms of consequences. We think in terms of opportunities, right? So what I mean by that is, is if I take a risk, and I step out on a ledge to to do something that is within the parameters of the law and things like that. My 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 default mindset is: What is the benefit going to be to me? What is the upside here? And in a lot of parts of the world, and including in a place like modern day China, where you very much have a very strong police apparatus, uh, you very much have at all levels of society this sort of creeping sensation of. Um, if I do this, what's the consequences going to be to me or my family? That's a very different sort of mindset. And so it's almost hard to get people to understand or to separate that feeling or that mentality and frame it then in terms of what well, could feel like this. It could be this. Why don't you think that way? It's just not for a lot of them part of their, their, their even their mental makeup or their scheme of the world. Uh, you hear similar stories about, you know, people who get out of North Korea and they don't even understand they don't even understand that, that there are words for things, right? That there are words for love or there's words for family because they're not, it's not part of the mental makeup they grew up with. You, you also see in a, in a very profound way, coercion, even reach across the ponds. I saw someone in the chat here say, um, the, even expats, people who, live overseas, people who work overseas, but are Chinese nationals, they will either, in some cases, uh, willingly provide information or willingly, uh, we'll just say illicitly transfer intellectual property back home. Uh, but in a lot of cases, they will do it because they understand implicitly the expectation is if I don't do this, if I'm in a position to do something and I don't, there could be consequences for the people I love back home. And so it's very difficult for for us in the United States, where we are a quarter the population of China, and we're trying to maintain a peer advantage to them, if they do not do things to shoot themselves in the foot, they simply have numerical superiority, right? They're going to have more of the top 10% of their students are going to outnumber 80% of our student body. So you're in this situation where the weight of numbers works against us, the weight frankly, of our own greed as Americans has worked against us because we've offshored and transferred so much of our own of our own supply chain sovereignty. So what we have done is we have co-located or completely located fundamental aspects of what we consider 
and our society to be very important to us. Uh, our ability as consumers to buy whatever we want, uh, our ability to engage freely in commerce, but we've co-located a lot of that into a country that lately, in the last 20 years, certainly accelerated under the, the, the reign of Xi Jinping. Uh, this, this sense that that is now a leash to snap around our necks as Americans and dog walk us around the world. And the way, we have to the, recognize... Go ahead. No, go ahead. I just want to say, in a way, it reminds me of the opium wars, but in reverse, where England was uh, giving all this opium to the masses of China. Now we have this opium of a lot of these uh, cheap products. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think that that would be an issue. What... Uh, I'm also thinking about, though, is that when it comes to the not just the quality of goods that comes out of China, but the amount of money that allowed China to excel in the first place when it comes to how much you pay people in the first place. If the middle class of China is starting to rise up right now, people are um, getting more pay. If there's so many people who are living in China today, and eventually a lot of them are going to want to be paid just as much as, let's say, the Americans are paid, how sustainable would the original model be that the Chinese uh, created? I mean, it would be fundamentally unsustainable uh, to, to orient our supply chains in the exact same way and according to the same business practices that we've adopted really since the 1990s. Um, the 80s was really the time we said China's opening up, China is a friend. Uh, all the Harvard MBAs started to get the brilliant idea that, that outsourcing was the way to go. And it began with components. It began with things that were just cheap parts and larger, more expensive products. And it has now grown to the point where there's, in a lot of ways, very little uh, of what we would consider normal consumer goods that we that that. Uh, we utilize in the United States the vast majority of our computers. Certainly, most of the components within the computers are made in Asia, if if not always in China, but for a large part in China. And so we 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 gradually eroded and gave away sovereignty and, and of our supply chains, or even the capacity and capability to produce these things at a at a cost effective scale. And that has held us back because what we I think we would have done is we would have found ways to automate. We would have found ways to work within the framework of our smaller population, our larger, uh, more expansive regulatory state from the environmental side. Uh, we would have found a way, I think, if we'd have been forced to stay within that, that, that world of doing most things ourselves, or at least within North America, we would have found ways to make that work. But we didn't. We said we don't need to make that investment because we can just send it to a place where they work for pennies on the dollar compared to an American worker and more or less where they can advance the ball supply chain wise a lot faster because they don't have the same regulatory requirements we do. Here is an article. They'll dump chemicals, right? If those decisions get made, we can. Well, definitely. I mean, here's an article talking about South Korea, how it has, I believe, uh, 631 robots per 10,000 employees already. So they're an example of a small nation that was able to automate. We could have done the same thing. It just seemed like we were uh, we we made a pretty a pretty bad deal for ourselves here. But regarding whether it's sustainable on China's part, let's say, like how much of China's GDP is uh, exports of all of these different products versus uh, uh, things that they do internally? Hmm. I don't know the raw numbers offhand, so I don't want to spit that out. What I do know is is that about twenty percent of everything made in the world is made in China. 
from a manufacturing standpoint. If it is a manufactured good or a uh, sort of a primary raw material that gets turned into a, a secondary raw material to make other products, it, 20% of that's made in China, roughly. And that number bounces around a little bit. Uh, but enormous, uh, enormous part, a if it were to go away, a crippling part of their GDP is is directly connected to the things they make and export to the rest of the world. And there was a time when it was just small consumer goods. Uh, and then it became, well, cheap electronics. And then it became, well, cheap raw materials, you know, like cheap Chinese steel or cheap drywall or cheap plywood, right? Um, now they, they have advanced the ball to the point where they are manufacturing, they are the largest uh, ocean vessel manufacturer, right? And they've taken that intellectual property that was transferred to them so they could make ships there instead of in, say, the Korean shipyards or the Japanese shipyards or nearer for the U.S. And they've taken that and they've iterated and they've iterated and they've iterated and they've continued to fail forward and to the point where they took maritime shipbuilding expertise and now they're applying it to building their Navy ships. Now they, you know, components that were for making speedboats in the United States, but essential raw material or essential components of those boats were made there. They said, well, okay, we already know how to make the engine. We already know how to make the electronics. We already know how to make all of these things. All we need to do is just figure out how to design a hole that can withstand that. And now they have the ability to make, you know, missile boats for their Navy. So everything that, that, that we have done is we've gradually over time given them the tools and the resources, the availability to do things for us. And they finally woke up one day and said, guess what? It's no longer yours and we're just using it to make things for you. It's ours now and you can't take it. And now we're having to remember or relearn as, as the United States how to do a lot of these things from a supply chain side. But we're starting from far further back than we would have if we had, had kept and preserved a large part of that for ourselves. And the forces of higher labor costs and higher environmental regulations would have forced us to adapt and find some really interesting novel ways to automate those processes or do them more efficiently to overcome that offset of cheap labor and no environmental regulations overseas. But now that we have the situation, I hope that we are going to be able to automate. But meanwhile, what is going to be the value of the uh, Chinese market to not just the U.S., but to other countries if all of a sudden most of the Chinese people are going to want higher wages? So is there a certain, let's say, uh, is there a certain peak at which point China would not really be able to compete or rather would not be able to grow unless they would still keep the wages as low as they are right now. That's what I'm trying to figure out, because that seems to be uh, an important part of this whole deal. Yeah, I mean, there very much is a there very much is a ceiling, right? There is a price point at which it no longer makes sense to make things in China and the forces of capitalism or you know, whatever term we want to use for this odd sort of politicized capitalism we have in the U.S. At some point, and, and we already saw it a little bit, that was that was the stated intent of Trump's tariffs was to try to reduce dependence on China and force reshoring or nearshoring activities to occur. Predictably, that's not really what happened. You started to see a lot of things, uh, a lot of factories and sourcing starting to come online in places like Vietnam or Cambodia, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia. But what was interesting was for a time we were celebrating the fact that, well, some of these factories, some of this business is leaving China and, and now we're able to buy from Malaysia or now we're able to buy from Indonesia, from the Philippines. And 
as it turns out, what was happening was they were shutting the factories down in China. They were removing all the manufacturing capacity and containers or on ships or whatever, setting up in those new countries. And all of a sudden you have, to some extent, Chinese laborers, but certainly Chinese foremen, factory managers, Chinese business owners, and local labor from whatever country they reshored to. And now all of a sudden they're able to take the exact same technology, the exact same products and say, well, they're not made in China. They're not subject to the 9903 you know, tariffs. Uh, these are exempt because they're made in Vietnam. And we didn't really do our due diligence on who these factories were. We didn't really, we just said, well, obviously if it's made in Vietnam, it's totally copacetic. And what we ignored was the fact that a very strong white market, gray market and black market all developed for reshoring Chinese production not back to the United States, but to other countries. And we just sort of began two-stepping everything. And that is, um, if nothing else, was certainly a failure of imagination on the part of Trump's economic advisors to not see that that was probably the obvious first step. Um, but we certainly have found in the last 18 months, really since the onset of this pandemic and the disruption of our supply chains, that that's very much true, that we are seeing those factories in Vietnam or Cambodia still operate in lockstep with Chinese government goals and Chinese government parameters and price that same way, operate the same way. And so now not only does China still have a very significant dominant manufacturing and maritime export capacity, but now they have managed to actually expand and increase their control throughout the Asian countries. Uh, so it's, it's been a very savvy series of geopolitical maneuvers on their part. That sounds an awful lot like the uh, Dutch East India Company. It sounds an awful lot like there being this very prominent imperial move to go into these countries and not by war, not by conquest, but uh, just by slowly setting up shop and doing business, uh, be having this uh, transfer of power happen. But do you notice it happens on the political side as well when it comes to the countries you just mentioned right now in uh, Southeast Asia, let's say? I don't see it to some extent. I mean, in some countries, certainly you you've began to see a lot of the political discussions and camps begin to divide along the line of to what extent should we continue to allow Chinese influence? Thailand is a great example of that, where there is an enormous push-pull dynamic within Thailand to either uh, draw further away from China or to draw further close. Um, some countries are probably already lost that. Myanmar is a great example where um, the Chinese influence, particularly the military junta, there has uh, more or less taken taken control of the country via proxy right um it's very divided in vietnam i would say the preponderance of um vietnamese political focus is on cautious optimism economically with regard to china but <laughs> very much awareness uh, of what happened in 1979 but also since then where we've seen uh, China's very malignant sort of gray zone activities, declaring the entire South China Sea as being their domain via the nine dash line. Uh, and that has come at direct expense, you know, to Vietnam and to others. So you do have this very strong undercurrent, not just suspicion, but outright antagonism towards, uh, you know, towards Chinese owners of businesses, factory owners, managers. But at the same time, I think there's this feeling of, making a deal with the devil a little bit to, to continue to be able to expand market presence in the international market. Everybody's kind of convinced themselves, yeah, they're really pissed off at China, but at the same time, for the most part, we've, we've continued to see this trend generally towards these countries allowing uh, more and more 
of their own supply chains to be dictated and directed by China, if not completely 100% Chinese in terms of the personnel. Very interesting. And we have a guest to join us here, Apex at Apex Simaps. That's A-P-E-X-S-I-M-M-A-P-S. Apex, my friend, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in here today. So I'm curious, uh, Apex, what your thoughts are on, uh, if you had a chance to listen to our conversation so far, and your thoughts on uh, China in general, what's going to be happening in the uh, future. So go for it, my friend. Uh, I've been a well, well. First, thanks for thanks for having me, Lev. Um, and hello, Huntsman. Nice to meet you. Um, hey, but I uh, I've been a little busy with work. Unfortunately, I just finished a project, so I haven't really been able to listen in. But the last couple of minutes that I did hear um, sounds in line with with everything that that I've heard. Um, you know the the uh, idea that there are uh, a lot of competing there's, there's a lot of uh, flashpoints in the South China Sea to put it simply um, mm-hmm. so uh, I'm not the expert and I'm uh, more interested in hearing what uh, what Huntsman has to say so I'll, I'll let him continue all right, absolutely. And we do have related questions, by the way, from the Prudentialist, who unfortunately cannot make it tonight, but I just want to do a quick shout out to the Prudentialist, great friend of the show, and uh, I always appreciate when he's on. You can find him on Twitter at 2BPrudential. Anyway, one of Prudentialist's questions was, uh, do you foresee China taking a larger role in the international trade security with its plans to expand its navy? So that kind of goes off what uh, we were saying earlier. Yeah, that's a hell of a good question, actually. Um, and, I, and I would say understanding that premise is fundamental to understanding the vast majority of other maneuvers that China is, is currently engaged in. The Chinese Navy is not anywhere near what the United States Navy is on a per ship basis, uh, if you're talking submarines on a per boat basis. But what they have done is fundamentally taken a completely different approach to the understanding. So we follow very much uh, what we may call like a Mahanian uh, view of naval power, naval supremacy. And so that's Alfred Thayer Mahan. That's where concepts like sea lines of communication came from in the late 1800s. And that has been the premise of American naval strategy and thus our shipbuilding base, thus the types of weapons we've developed, the type of ships we've developed. Um, that has influenced us for the last 120 years or so. And that's what we may loosely call like a blue water naval strategy, which is very large capital ships uh, like aircraft carriers. And then we surround them with uh, very powerful uh, escort frigates, gunships, things like that. Uh, But for the most part, everything is in service of uh, the capital ship and the group and then being able to, as a fleet, project force. Where China has taken a very different approach, and this this is where Belt and Road very much is reveals itself as a as a strategy of synthesis of commercial and military goals is the expansion of commercial ports that operate as commercial ports that are top to bottom commercial ports but can flip a switch and in a moment be utilized in some way for military purposes and we've seen that where uh, China has periodically docked its submarines at places that are allegedly commercial ports. Um, but all of a sudden, a submarine pulls up to it, and you're like, well, this is a commercial port. What's it doing here? But it's able to fuel. It's able to resupply. It's able to f- perform replenishment operations. And so what we've seen here is China saying, well, we don't need to have 10 aircraft carriers to project force all over the world. We don't need to have... Um, 
massive, you know, multi-billion dollar uh, carrier strike groups, you know, treading the waters of the world in order to project force to protect Chinese interests. What we do need to have are a lot of small ships uh, or smaller ships and the ability to get them to and base them somewhat proximally to areas of Chinese interest. Predominantly, we're seeing that at uh, Djibouti was the first one. It kind of shook the world up when they built a naval base at Djibouti. You know that that's where, where is Djibouti? See, hmm. uh, uh, so it's it's in the Horn of Africa. It's, it's right at the entrance to the Babel Mandeb Strait, which is the south part of the Red Sea. Um, and so, of course, a lot of people don't even know where the Red Sea was, but it became very famous when a giant ship got lodged at the north end of it here back in March. Um, so the Suez Canal uh, is you know, the, the, the gateway or the pass between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. And Suez Canal was where, of course, we saw the Ever Given get itself stuck for a couple of weeks. And then the south end of that, though, is the Battle Man of Strait. So you have Djibouti, which is a very small little uh, country in the Horn of Africa. And then it and I believe it's Eritrea sit right across the Battle Mandib from Yemen. So, and then right there's the Gulf of Aden, where we've had all the very famous piracy incidents. We had the Marist Alabama incident, where uh, Tom Hanks is apparently the captain of a ship. <laughs> and so, from that, that's a great picture right there. So, from that, what we have seen there is that they established a navy base there ostensibly as a means of anti uh, facilitating anti piracy operations. And from that, what they've expanded into, so you see the Doralay multipurpose port there as well. I've actually got active shipments going there now. Right next door to it is a Chinese naval base. And now that Chinese naval base is not just some place where you can bring a few ships. It is capable of hosting a full-size aircraft carrier uh, to uh, of, of the same size class. I believe it's their Type 003 class uh, carrier that they've got uh, about half built uh, there in China. It is a supercarrier. It is almost the same class or same size as our Gerald Ford class that we're still uh, undergoing sea trials with. They're a few years behind us, but they have closed that gap very rapidly. And so what we can see with be is a bit of a prototype capability to project force outside of China's immediate littoral waters or outside of their immediate sort of scope of influence. And I believe that's the, that's the Liaoning or Shandong. I think it's the Liaoning aircraft carrier. Um, We've seen then this desire by them to say, okay, we'll build military bases, but guess what? If it is a commercial port that is capable of berthing a ship that drafts at a certain depth, it can be it can also serve our purposes and our needs, which is why we've seen from an economic and a military standpoint, this push of Belt and Road to acquire uh, controlling interests or very significant minority stakes in various ports and terminals all over Europe, all over the Med, and all over the Indian Ocean and in the United States. So it's it's a very interesting playbook they've been running, and it is a major threat to the United States economic interests so long as we continue to operate in this very globalized paradigm. So Djibouti was a proof of concept, but we're gonna see more. Um, we're going to continue to see uh, a push for an Atlantic side of Africa, naval base similar to Djibouti. There's a lot of speculation about where it could be. But what we've seen in the last couple of years is a significant increase in piratical activity happening in the Gulf of Guinea. Um, so that involves countries like Guinea, Ghana, the Ivory Coast, uh, Nigeria, Cameroon, and to the south end, Angola, which is a country that has basically sold itself out to being a vassal state of China. Uh, and Angola is, um, importantly, the gateway into uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is where, what, something like 70% of the cobalt in the world is mined. 
So you can see these pieces begin to kind of slowly interlock together, maybe slower than China wanted. Uh, but they are pursuing a strategy that's very fundamentally different from a Navy's perspective, but also from the way in which we as the United States consider commercial and military naval domains to be different. In the United States, the Navy protects the sea lines communication. We protect the global commons with military force. The PLA and the PLAN, the People's Liberation Army Navy, and the CCP say that is not the approach here. It is a synthesis of the two approaches, and where one ends, the other begins, and vice versa. And we have awoken, I think, probably a little too late to that to fully stop it, but there are still a lot of things we can do as the United States to serve our own interests economically, but also begin to mitigate or cut off at the past some of these other strategies that we've seen through Belt and Road and a few other programs and initiatives that China's had going on around the world. That's if we end up doing it, which we may or may not. If we were to do a... Uh, question. Yes. If we were to do a uh, what if over here, the people who are, let's say, more on the side of uh, uh, Donald Trump, for example, people who would even go further to make America much more of an isolated country, kind of going to the, uh, let's say, the idea of an Arcadia that existed, you know, back during the founding of the United States, for it to be this peaceful refuge away from all the uh, troubles of uh, European interfighting and all that. Obviously, that was a long time ago. But uh, the question now is, if we were to go into this locked state, I think America is very uh, self-sufficient, more self-sufficient than many other countries, just because mm -hmm. of the amount of natural resources we have. That's all good in the hood. But my biggest concern is, what is going to happen then? Let's say America locks in, like, uh, people wanted to and what is going to happen to not only all the other countries that are going to be around Chinese and Russian influence let's say but uh, even America itself if we're talking spans of uh, 50 years 100 years all that because I still can't imagine that just locking oneself inside and just focusing on oneself in an interconnected society would work or would not yield certain uh, certain results that people people may not anticipate but again I could be wrong so uh, let me know what you think we we as the United States, as far as within a single landmass, probably have the most incredible diverse bounty of natural resources available to sustain a people anywhere on Earth. We've got abundant energy capabilities. Um, we've got uh, abundant uh, lumber. We've got abundant materials to make things like concrete and cement. Uh, we have unbelievable amounts of uh, waterways and natural resources and the ability to produce protein. So all the building blocks of life, yeah, we definitely have. Where we, where we fall short to some extent and where we need to do better is understanding what the building blocks are for the current global economy and where we want to go. If we're going to be a space-faring people, which Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos to one extent or another seem hell-bent on us being, I do have my theory. I think Elon Musk is an alien that wants to go home, and, and I think Jeff <laughs> Bezos is, is le legitimately Lex Luthor. Um, and just Wait, I, I have another quick theory. Actually, this is not my theory. Yeah. This is the theory of Jason Giorgiani, but his theory is that Elon Musk wants to prove that this is all a simulation, so he wants to go to Mars and just see like what's going to happen then. <laughs> I can see that. Although I grew up playing a lot of Doom, so like my my whole perspective of should we inhabit Mars to some extent or another is pretty skewed. Uh, obviously, the portal to hell is on Mars, but um, 
to, to the extent that that very prominent, powerful interests in the United States want us to be spacefaring, a spacefaring people, and I think we should be, um, if only for the scientific pursuit. I don't necessarily think we're going to destroy our own world in the next ten years, but a lot of good has come from really trying to push the boundaries and the envelope of human exploration throughout the universe. And I love that. And I'm here for that because humans, we can do really amazing things when we put our minds to it, particularly as Americans, because mm -hmm. we have a, we have a constitutional and economic framework born in the enlightenment that says natural laws is the way to be. And as long as you're within the boundaries of life, liberty and pursuit of happiness, you can do these really amazing things. Now, what we have seen is our political overclass really in the last 50 years come right out and say, no, you can't. You serve our interests. And that's a separate discussion from what we notionally should be able to do versus what we practically can today. But we can tackle that differently. We do have the abundant natural resources to some extent. What we don't have, though, are abundant natural resources that are fundamental and essential to the world we live in today, to the technology that we need. We don't have all the cobalt right we don't have all the lithium that you need to make batteries molybdenum and all these others go right down the list of all criti critical and strategic materials that usgs and um, department of energy track and things like that and we are deficient in well over half of them to where we must import them so we have the stuff that keeps us happy and fulfilled and satisfied at the bottom of maslow's hierarchy but if we're going to do some really big amazing things as a country, if we're going to continue to push the envelope of innovation from a renewables energy standpoint, um, from an atomic standpoint, from a new space age materials capability, then we have to identify those countries where those materials are in either extractable proportion or in abundance if we can find a way to get to them. And we have to find a way to work deals with those countries. And that's where we can't always do away. We can't do away with globalism 100%. I'd like to see America be like 70% nationalist, right? In terms of our supply chain base. Well, do we mean global go, globalization mean, or do we mean globalization or globalism? Because the two words, they sometimes uh, people think that they mean the same Very thing. Different. At least, yeah, at least my definition of globalism has been the swindling that's been going on of a lot of uh, jobs that otherwise could have remained in the country. You know, if we're not talking about, mm -hmm. uh, again, well, I'm not going to get into that part of it so much. I do want to say, though, that uh, I did see a 4chan thread and you know how, um, you know, how very uh, smart and astute a lot of the 4chan people are. So, I saw a 4chan thread talking about the possibility of building a space elevator and how something like that would solve so many of our problems. If we're talking about mining asteroids, if we're talking about creating a solar panel on that elevator that's going to really quickly bring the energy uh, down to the Earth. And at least the post itself seemed to be very excited about this prospect and was almost like, why is nobody talking about this? Why is nobody making a big deal? And they even broke down like how much it would cost and all that. And it would cost way less than a lot of the wars that we were in and all that. So I don't know. Any thoughts? I mean, this may be totally out of your purview, but just in case, any thoughts on space elevators? As far as like a physical, physical machine or construct that will enable us to take assets here all the way and I think if we could do such a thing it would be so vulnerable to uh, attack or to sabotage uh, the country that figures out how to do that first is then going to find out you know you're talking about a single fixed physical thing that is vulnerable to all I mean we can't even secure our energy pipelines you know for transmission of gas and refined fuel products in the US if we create a massive, gigantic 
capability here in the U.S. to send things at extremely low cost and high speeds from the ground all the way up to outer space. There is no way a war is not going to be fought over that technology five days after we cut the ribbon on it. Right? Wow. Because it's yeah. just the implications of that are simply too profound. Uh, I have a very cynical view uh, from a geopolitical standpoint that if you come up with something that is such an incredible first mover advantage that you could build an entire global walled garden economically around it and around that technology, there is no way in which that technology is not going to be stolen, iterated or fought over almost immediately. Um, so if you're going to see that a technology like that exists, and I'm not a physicist, right? Like, I mean, I'm barely a functioning English speaker at the time, but from from a supply chain, from a geopolitical perspective, history teaches us very quickly that next generation weapons or next generation technologies are extremely quickly targeted for espionage. They're targeted for theft, uh, or you have to find a way to generate, to make that technology available to as many stakeholders as possible. And so you distribute the risk of attack, you distribute the risk of you know, malign self-interest against it. And that's really about what you can do. Um, because there's no way America figures out how to build a space elevator and the rest of the world's going to sit around and go, yeah, we'll let you reap the benefits of that for 50 years until we figure it out ourselves. Right. It's, it's, it's going to come to a pretty, pretty fast loggerheads. Well, there was a comment earlier on from Lisa Bode. Does Lev really think they will allow us to get free, almost free energy? LMAO, work hard for that petrol, baby. I mean, that is the other uh, concern that people have today, that if there was some kind of free energy, not only what you were saying, which I think is uh, very valid, but also people would you know, black box that shit in an instant because so many, so, so much money is at stake. But that may be very conspiratorial of me. How, uh, how right do you think Lisa is? To the extent that we're able to develop game-changing you know, so the question is really about fundamentally, are we going to be stuck with, you know, legacy, uh, legacy fuel, legacy energy, legacy sort of systems for powering our world, right? You know, versus things that in a lot of ways set us free from the natural resources we're currently locked yeah. in from a fossil fuel perspective. Yeah, like the Tesla Tower, for example, back in the day that was thought of. And again, it was thought of by the guy who we have to thank for having all the electricity in the first place. So I wouldn't necessarily, sure. uh, you know, call him a fringe figure. <laughs> uh, I think it was David Bowie that played him in the uh, uh, the Prestige or whatever, right? So mm. I, I like that. Uh, yeah, I, I like that portrayal of Tesla more than, you know, the kind of the pencil mustache guy. But yeah, um, no, I mean, it, it's... Um, a lot of things that are viable, a lot of things that are possible, uh, a lot of things that we should do, right? In order to increase individual human freedom, uh, in order to provide a better world for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, for our countries, will not get done. Will not get done. Um, because of the practical limitations of, of human avarice, human selfishness, um, the simple belief by some people in the world that it is not possible to have game-changing technologies and not immediately exploit that for profit or power. And a lot of times the kind of people who are able to push the envelope, think about Tesla. Tesla was in many ways a very humble man. He was phenomenally brilliant. 
but he was extremely naive about power. And so the, the two things we remember about Tesla is that he lived at the very edges, well beyond the edges of human innovation and understanding of the mechanics of the world. And at the same time, the other thing we remember about Tesla is, is that he was bullied, is that he was brought to heel by Thomas Edison, that his mm. technologies were so far ahead of their time that not the visionaries of the day, but the powerful people of the day were able to co-opt him and were able to put him into a box and turn him into, um, if not a laughing stock, certainly marginalize the contributions he could have made to society in his day. And that in, in a lot of ways is the story of human history. At the time we realized the things that we don't trade for, we fight for. Um, if you can't operate from an abundance mentality, if you can't see that there is always a win for everybody involved, or if you find yourself in a situation where realistically there really is no win, it really is zero sum, either I have to have it or you have to have it. You're going to end up in a situation where conflict is the inevitable outcome. There has to be a settling of scores or there has to be a resolution to the dispute. And as brilliant as Tesla was, as much as we probably would be living in a much better world today, if his innovations had been given room to grow and blossom and expand, he was held back and humanity was held back by the short-minded people of the day that said, no, we're going to put this in a box and we're going to limit this to the extent that we can manipulate it for our own power. If we can't figure out how to do that, then we're going to go with a next best alternative that we can control. And we saw that with the fact that we, you know, America had a very large electrified rail, uh, not rail, but um, like light trolley car system in a number mm -hmm. of cities. Who and framed Roger like, Rabbit? Who framed Roger Rabbit explained so, all right? of that. Yeah. <laughs> One <laughs> of my so favorite what, movies. That's what we saw. It's a fantastic movie, man. It's, yeah, uh, Jess Jessica Rabbit. It's I mean, funny. Come on. <laughs> it's funny how we've seen some of these really absurd uh science fiction or comedy you know type uh type films i think in a lot of ways explain our world far better than the very mm. serious you know ponder some academic stuff but well I, uh, I could give you a quick example there with tesla yeah, even please. in his uh biography written by a longtime friend of tesla's from uh, childhood days one of the things written there was how he used to breathe in and out and how he started having sensations in the spine now for all the btr veterans out there are probably sick of hearing me talk about kundalini <laughs> but since uh uh since huntsman here is new to the show and i really am enjoying this conversation very much but since you're new to the show Show, I usually talk about similar experiences that I personally have when it comes to this electrical energy going up and down my spine when I breathe. Mm -hmm. And if we read a lot of these old mystic texts, uh, or even new mystic texts, whatever, like they talk about the same process of breathing in, out, having this electri electric energy come up, and that is the transmutation of the human mind into a higher state of consciousness that prompts with it, again, in my personal experience, various visions, various three-dimensional three uh, things being viewed, even more intensely when you're in a half-dream space, but even when you just uh, meditate with the lights off, you end up seeing a lot of interesting things. Nikola Tesla always described seeing the visions before putting them into uh, into the proper work. And I want to tie this to a quote that he said before about um, 
If you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. The biggest problem, though, is that the uh, new age movement, whatever the hell you want to call it, full of those stupid hippies, I think that's been such, such a black mark on the possibility of what could be done here, because a lot of them take drugs, a lot of them go to Burning Man, a lot of them seem to waste the opportunity mm -hmm. they have to actually apply this in such a way as to, uh, you know, as to create the Ubermensch or whatever you want to call it. But um, one last thing that I want to touch on, because I don't want to go all hippy-dippy on you here, and I want Apex to also get a word in edgewise, is uh, have you heard about that, um, the uh, former, uh, what's his name here, Haim Ashed, the former head of Israel's Defense Ministry's Space uh, Directorate uh, talked about that there's this Galactic Federation and how we're not ready to be a part of it yet, how we have a deal to do various experiments. And from that point of view, it's a very different reality than the one we're used to here um, on, uh, you know, on the regular real world as we conceive it. Because this reality basically says that since World War II, you know, not just Operation Paperclip, but various other things have been going on behind the scenes that we are not aware of when it comes to what's actually going on on the moon, what's actually going on on Mars, and we are just given a bread and circus equivalent of these uh, rich uh, billionaires going up into space for a little bit and then going down and jumping up and down in mm -hmm. victory. But in comparison to, um, you know, in comparison to what I just said right now, that is nil, that is nothing. So I don't know what your personal take is on various uh, black projects and various things that may have been kept out of the books and what exactly when it comes to a lot of these things, um, what exactly are the protocols? Is it possible to keep certain things and yeah we could say that there are certain whistleblowers that have come out but again they all get labeled you know with the uh, tinfoil hat but how easy would you say it is for certain things to be so compartmentalized in our current uh, in our current world for something like that to actually be a reality? Because this guy's like eighty something years old. Uh, he's very well respected. I don't think he necessarily needs to uh, play the jester here. So I don't know. It's a it's an interesting thing. But let me know what you think. <laughs> To the extent that black box, project, black box projects exist, I tend to assume the vast majority of them are directed towards uh, far, far less uh, almost spiritual goals, right? Most people who are concerned with power, most people who are concerned with wealth are not concerned with um, spiritual ascension, enlightenment, the esoteric things of the universe. Uh, I tend to believe that most, most people operate from fairly base needs or base desires however they they dress it up based in red pill um, desires yeah go on so right yeah so so i think to the, to the extent that we have poured billions of dollars into all these alleged black box projects by and large if there are alien spacecraft currently hiding out at nellis air force base you know adjacent area 51 if they're at uh you know an hour away from where I'm sitting here at Wright Pattern Farm Space. To the extent that we're trying to adopt and, and manipulate those technologies, it's not so we become a spacefaring people. It's so we can build like way faster, more durable jets and missiles to blow each other up with, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's that's largely how it functions from a political level. And it, it functions that way to some extent from a corporate and capitalist level too, because if you come up with the next great world-beating technology, notionally you're the next trillionaire right you're the next 
you're the next guy whose name is going to be sung throughout history. And those are very base motives. My sense is, is that at some point, and I don't really know when it happened, but human beings, at some point, we crawled out of the caves and we looked up to the sky and we said, there is a story to be told. There's a story to be told. And we began to assign value to the things around us, not just value of if I eat this, it kills me. Uh, if I eat this, it heals me. If I eat this, it makes me feel better. If I kill this animal, I can wear its skin and stay warm. If I rub these things together, I can make fire. At some point, we begin to assign value and meaning to the universe around us, to the to the tangible and the intangible things. And we and and for a long time, I think the arc of human history was yes, survival, but also how do we achieve some measure of self-actualization and some measure of the same thing, but at a tribal scale. And the more the world became commercialized, the more we began to manipulate objects in our hands and manipulate one another. And we built supply chains up and we built up political systems and we built up monetary systems and we built up ways of making war more effectively on one another. We stopped looking at the sky and saying, what is out there that I am a part of? What is out there that is more real and bigger and, and in a sense, more spiritual than the things that I can hold in my hands and manipulate? And today... I believe there still is in almost everybody a desire to utilize the tools and resources and ideas available to them in their immediate sphere uh, of thought or grasp and try to make their world a little bit better for themselves and for the people they care about. And, and in some ways, the ideological constructs they care about. But we, by and large, live in a paradigm or in a society or in a global society, as it were, that the means of production, the means of facilitating our needs, the means of creating things of value that fulfill ourselves and fulfill one another are not controlled by people who have that maybe higher order desire, or they don't recognize it in themselves because they've long ago abandoned that childlike hope. Like I want to go to space because I want to see really, really, really cool things, right? Like I want to see in my lifetime what, I want to see a human being be able to like visit another planet and legitimately set up shop there. Right. So I'm all about, if Elon wants to go to Mars, great. Let's build the technology to do that. Because even if we fail that, we're going to build some really cool stuff that we can use here for ourselves. Definitely. I'm all about that. I mean, I, I doubt but a lot we're of alone. other people want to do that simply because they can make more money. I mean, I doubt we're alone in the universe. I think there are other beings out there very similar to us who live on other planets just from the vast size of it, as well as just the human form. Very different from the animal form, even though we are animals at the end of the day. But I do see it as different just in terms of we can't really survive outside of building a shelter for ourselves where all the other animals seem very much suited to whatever environment they happen to be in. But be that as it may, I do want to get to Apex. And uh, But right before I get to Apex, just uh, this may be a little bit of a haunting thing later on when we get Jason Giorgiani on. He's going to talk about this with us. It's pretty, again, I don't really know what to make of it right now. I'm not going to put my foot down and say I believe this or not, but it 
it's very interesting that certain things out there, like um, Admiral Byrd, who uh, was in the uh, Navy, I believe, U.S. Navy, and uh, took that exploratory mission over to Antarctica. This is where, let's say, the more uh, conspiratorial side of the internet, uh, the uh, schizo side of the internet, whatever you want to call it, it ends up uh, coming to a very interesting conclusion that this was no exploratory mission, Operation High Jump, that this was actually Americans trying to destroy the Nazis who were stationed in Antarctica. And again, like I know all of this sounds ridiculous uh, in, in case you never heard of it before, I completely understand. And I don't know what to make of it either, but the idea there is like a lot of those advanced craft that people have seen going under the water and all that, like the Navy recently had that video that came out about a year ago, I believe. All of that was written about in newspapers back in the 40s, 50s. You had the Battle, battle of Los Angeles. You had the Foo Fighters over, um, over I think, um, the White House during the, uh, during the 50s. So a lot of these things to me, like if we were to take this frame of, uh, yes, the Nazis are still around and they're in Antarctica and God knows where else, and they're the ones who end up having these spacecrafts, it's almost like looking at the situation we have in China right now, like a mini version of that, where we are concerned about what the Chinese are doing with their craft, but something like that, that again, I'm not gonna bring out a whole essay here to prove that this is what's happening, I have no idea, but from the little bits and pieces that get scattered around the internet, it is a very interesting thing to think about if we think about the world in that perspective, the perspective of there being some kind of a, um, a break breakaway civilization that decided to uh, disc you know discard the notion of having anything to do with the nonsense that's going on on our world right now. It's a different frame of mind to have. So I don't know if you've personally ever had that frame of mind. I don't want to dwell on this too long. Apex has been waiting long enough. But if there's any short thing that you would want to add just in relation to that, because it's very it's very out of left side. It's very weird. I completely understand it, but it is something that's on the mind of a lot of people who are online right now, who are trying to find out what exactly is the truth, what exactly is going on. Mm -hmm. it, I think that the truth is often more mundane than we want it to be. And the problem with mundane is that for some people right it's just how they live it's how it is if there is a breakaway civilization and they inhabit a world of their own choosing even if even if they're within the same sort of terrestrial realm we are right but they fundamentally live within their own little world um and they're happy then i think we should do everything we could just to leave them the hell alone <laughs> well we've got, own, we, we've got like our own crap to resolve right yes um, now if it is a malignant breakaway civilization that is plotting and scheming we probably need to understand what that is too um, yeah even well uh, according to uh, according to Dorjani, he thinks that this uh, that the goal the end goal is to reduce the earth to a state of agriculture so that we don't reach the singularity but that's a whole other that's a whole other thing so in that case that's bad news bad news coming from this breakaway civilization but whatever in that case we're worried about like the the whole concept of like robust basilisk or whatever right so at, at some point is the singularity going to be aware self-aware enough to go back in time and kill us who knows right? so but, but uh, anyway i want i want doesn't happen. <laughs> i hope i hope that doesn't happen either oh and also the quote from a shed here the israeli guy mentioned um they have been waiting until today for humanity to develop and reach a stage where we will understand in general what space and spaceships are uh referring to the galactic 
Soviet Federation. So again, who knows if that's true? It's an interesting thing. At least it's something for us to work towards, like you said. But anyway, there was this quote from Clockwork Orange going to Apex now. Um, what sort of a world is it at all? Men on the moon and men spinning around the Earth? And there's not no attention paid to earthly law and order no more. That's from the, uh, the uh, bum there who was uh, beat up by Alex and his droogs in the Clockwork Orange. Great movie, mm-hmm. by the way. Highly recommended. But to that, uh, to that subject very of... Very eye-opening. It is, yes. But to that subject of what is going on on the well, Earth today... Come on, you missed, you missed the joke. You gotta... <laughs> Wait, what, what is the joke? Hold on. You know... Oh, God. Oh! Oh! Oh, man! That just flew right past me. <laughs> That flew right past me. Oh, man. By the way, everybody, subscribe right now. All the people who are watching this, all the people who came here from the Huntsman, first of all, let me know who you are in the chat, and I welcome you to BTR. We bring people together. We are now... We are not... We are different from any of the other live streams out there, and I think, Huntsman, you could see that yourself. Anyway, uh, Apex, when... Thank you. When it comes to... when it comes to the people who are here on the earth, a lot of the complaints that people have here when it comes to the Biden administration, when it comes to what is happening with inflation, what is happening in general with the culture of the United States, what um, what I also see happening is people leaning on more authoritarian regimes, more, let's say, based in trad-pilled regimes as the solution to our problem. Mm-hmm. And, like, I have never hid the fact that, to me, that's a very dangerous precedent to set because none of the people, I'm sure, who are making a lot of these comments know what it's like to live in an actual authoritarian regime. But I'm curious, Apex, since you've been within this circle for a long time, just of people who have had, uh, you know, and I'm not saying that you have the same uh, ideas, but in general, I think you've been exposed to a lot of these uh, same conversations. Can you can, can you maybe say it in a different way than I said, or say anything that I may be missing here on what exactly is driving people to adopt such views? And also, do you think that they're right? Do you think that this may be something that's going to happen? Not the perfect thing, but like the best of all possibilities when it comes to this system's not working, it's failing, the only thing that'll be able to revive it is some kind of a di- uh, dictatorship. So I don't know. Apex, uh, go ahead, my friend. Well, I, I think that you know, in in a very similar way to to the theme that you and Huntsman's conversation on China has been, is there you, you saw a lot of kind of stepping back uh, and and almost just very basic power theorizing, um, trying to really. I mean, it's it's you're looking at a group that's going, why have we kept losing for fifty years? You know, I mean, that's that's really what what this these groups are asking themselves and. I think that there is that there are legitimate concerns about institutions, and then there's you know utopian pie in the sky. If everyone just agrees with me, you know everything will go perfectly, and blah blah blah. Um, so I, I think that part of this is um, is is you know starting on that first half. Part of it is is a legitimate concern. Is is looking at the procedures and the institutions and asking. You know, um, what what do they actually lead to beyond just what what they claim to? Um, you, I mean, you know that I've 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 written about this ex- pretty extensively. Is you know, uh, there's and and I you know the thing I wrote today was basically like this. Th- there is an awareness of 
kind of a, a, a collective failure on the institutional part. And part of that is there's no accountability. There's um, no there's no recourse to any kind of, uh, you know, who who is in charge? Who do I you know, one of the greatest tragedies of today is it's not even clear who exactly I'm supposed to blame. Um, you know, is it is it the president? Is it Congress? Is it the you know who are the elites? You know, like you, you hear all these these big you know they're capitalized words. You know, so they look official and everything, but you know what these are these are people and they're they're somewhere and they're you know but no one appears to have any awareness of of, of who they are and and I think that there's a general feeling of frustration and apathy that very quickly can accelerate into um can accelerate from a what i'll call a dispassionate analysis of power into a very ideological um almost proclamation where where an analysis starts reading like a manifesto more than anyone else um so you know, I, I mean, I, I think that it, it really depends on what exactly we're talking about, but that kind of frustration um, is really what I see. And, you know, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I won't quibble about the definitions of, of what counts as authoritarian or, or freedom or whatever. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that there are, there's legitimate concerns, there's legitimate analysis, but when when people shift from okay, let's let's analyze what the procedure of democracy does, for instance, um, how does it interface with in- inequalities in power between actors in society? How does it interface with a small group of people controlling the narratives that other people see? Versus, you know, if you just come into my based and trad Christian state you know, everything is going to be perfect. Um, and, and, you know, both of those kinds of discussions end up occupying the same space. And so as with any other movement, if you can call it a movement, it's, it's weird trying to identify a movement in, in a purely digital space. But if you can identify it as a movement, it has what I'll just say are more serious actors and less serious actors. Um, so, I mean, if you have a particular segment of it that you'd like to to go into more depth on, I'm I'm, I'm happy to share my experiences with that. Well, uh, Huntsman, uh, what do you think? To the extent that the world is, I would say, observably so, uh, bifurcated really from a uh, organization and from a functioning standpoint between the haves and the have-nots, you know, maybe the capable and the culpable, the elites and the non-elites, the cloud people and the mud people, right? Whatever whatever dichotomy you want to follow along. The Eloy or the help. Morlocks. Yeah, exactly right. You know, it's... it's. Uh, <clears throat> I think we have a lot of ways for framing what is probably a natural output of a world where increasingly the resources that we utilize to define our own experience in the world are able to be consolidated and controlled by a relatively small group of people. And we, we, I think think that 
the motives are such that while there must be this very elite cabal and they're in the castle of you know 10,000 points or what is a million points of light or whatever George H.W.'s frame for it was right so to the extent that we think that the Illuminati and the Freemasons and everybody else have taken over the world maybe that's very possible right Uh, a lot of things are possible that may or may not be true what I think drives that and what I think the focus needs to be is on how do we utilize the systems that we have available to us today the frameworks we have available to us today to uh, with as little disruption as possible to our own lives and to the lives of those we love undo the influence that that order has on us and in our personal lives and create new systems and new capabilities or older systems and capabilities that are rooted in an ideology that serves individual human freedom and serves the freedom of those we love how do we break away from that and so at the end of the day i don't really care why the elites do what they do because i can't stop them and their motives are largely irrelevant at the end of the day there's power and there's not power and to the extent that i can take power back for myself to the extent that i can be uh, a tool or a way to and a lot of people would agree i'm just a tool in general so i've been called that like way more than <laughs> but to the extent that i could be a i would say a functional tool that is helpful uh to others that's what i choose to do uh, it's one of the reasons i really love america we we have had our our very serious uh bouts with extremely anti-human anti-humanistic behaviors with viewing humans other humans as chattel as assets that can be worked to death that can be bought and sold and that's not okay and so whether it's white people black people brown people polka dot people whatever it may be the whole spectrum of human experience to the extent that people have been subjugated by the united states every single one of those is outside the boundaries of what i consider to be the ethos and the spirit on which we were founded, which is codified in the Declaration of Independence in our Constitution. And we've made changes that we've need to make to perfect and to, to perfect this grand experiment and things. But at the same time, we haven't always used that power for good. And my 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 goal, the thing that what I live for today as a 37-year-old, and the thing that I'll die, hopefully at like 100 years old, having accomplished or having advanced the ball in some way further, is away from rule of the common man by the elites, by the overclass, by those who say that my life and your life and the life of others only has value to the extent that I subscribe to their version of moral duties, that I subscribe to their version of what I'm allowed or not allowed to do as long as I don't hurt people. I'm supposed to subscribe to this paradigm of people and systems have value only to the extent that somebody says they do. I don't, I don't believe that. I think that every one of us is born um, equal and rights. I think every one of us is born equal to some extent and spirit and desire to do the right thing for ourselves fundamentally. But I think most people are born with the spirit and desire to do right by themselves and by others. Uh, I don't think humans are fundamentally broken. I don't think we're morally bankrupt at the time of birth. I think to a large extent, we learn to be that way. 
Hmm. Well, and the system the, the system that was developed here in the U.S., from what I understand, it was looking at people as very uh, as very uh, fallen creatures, where I think it was the expectation mm -hmm. that there's going to be a lot of problems, that you may vote somebody into the White House, that a lot of people are not going to like, yet still the system functions. And that's kind mm -hmm. of a test for uh, today. Are we at the point, are we at any breaking point, or are we repeating other things? Like I was reading before about the system. Sedition Act that was passed by uh, Woodrow Wilson, in which mm -hmm. people could just get arrested by, uh, you know, talking smack about the press, by talking smack about uh, the war and all that. So to me, that is a big example of history repeating itself, and not even to that much of an extent. Like, we still see echoes of it right now. But the reason why I bring that up is we have had uh, a lot of talk about how everything's going downhill. That's the only thing that would kind of bring up to say, like, wait a minute, like, we've been through this before. I'm not saying it's wonderful what we have right now, by no means but I just don't know when it comes to solving a lot of these problems um, how exactly would it be solved because the point that a lot of people are bringing up from more of the reactionary side is that they cannot be solved with any liberal ideology and in favor of that they would want to oppose a dictatorship to solve those problems for them because they don't see any way that a liberal ideology would solve it the only thing that i would kind of offer not really not really to their defense but it was a quote i know that you are a uh, fan of dune and that there was a quote from dune which goes as follows uh let's see over here when i am weaker than you i ask you for freedom because that is according to your principles when i am stronger than than you i take away your freedom because that is according to my principles so if that may be what we're dealing with right now as far as you know various uh leftist or corporatist elements that uh have a, a strong control over what goes on people assume the only way to solve it would be a very you know tight-fisted approach they are looking at various leaders and excusing them including xi jinping excusing them because in a way that they see a strong leader as being the only way to solve all of these different uh, greedy uh, interests that are currently uh, you know taking this country i don't hold that view but i'm trying to find out what exactly can be done to not go down that direction and to be able to preserve a lot of the things that we do like about this country I think we have a very interesting uh, complex of political philosophies emerging in the United States. And I think that's a natural output of the evolutionary pressure that we've been under as individuals to try to find some way to explain the absolute madness that we've all experienced in the last 20 years. Like I'm watching the chat here go through my screen and there's like, you know, concepts about like millennials and boomers and stuff like that. And, and, and I think I, I think it's even bigger than that. <laughs> humans fundamentally are wired in two really unusual ways. We are wired for self-interest and we are all also a used social species. Uh, not to the extent that ants and honeybees and things like that are, but we are used social in the sense that we are wired at some level to engage in cooperative pursuits towards mutual interest. And, and so in pursuing our own individual interest, we also gravitate towards finding systems and parameters that we can operate under that allow us to connect at some level to the self-interest of others, right? And then the rest of human history is that tension of how do we how do we solve that? So the one end of that paradigm is pure, in my view, pure democratic, what, what would be called democracy, which is one man, one vote, regardless of anything. 
And I think that's a recipe for chaos and madness because there, there is a, we're very familiar with the bell curve and it's been much debated over from an IQ standpoint, but to what extent observation has led us to say, generally the concept is true that there is a very large class of people that are semi-capable or somewhat capable broadly then very specific domains can be extremely capable. Then out here you have outliers to one side who are outliers in like their own stupidity, whether malignant or unintentional. You have outliers in terms of brilliance and capability and capacity. And some of them are malignant and use it for wrong ends. Um, some of them use it for very beneficent ends, but by and large, you know, we all live in the middle. And so we have tried to resolve this dilemma by saying, what is the way in which we can maximize the half of us that wants to pursue whatever the hell we want for our own self-interest. And the other half is, is how do we learn how to get along and cooperate? Right? So on the ones, on the one end you have, everybody has a choice. Everybody has a rule, but what we know is, is that there's going to be enough uh, brilliant people and enough idiots to skew decision-making probably in a way that does not benefit the whole. The other end, the other end is let's concentrate all the power and all the rule in the will of one human being or in a very, very small elite class of human beings. And I think the hope is for a lot of traditionalists, um, a lot of the reactionary, neo-reactionary crowd, a lot of people that maybe to some extent subscribe to Evola or you know, Nietzsche with his concept of the Ubermensch and some of these other things, you see a lot of people today that say, you know what, we tried the will of the people. We tried to have a representative democracy, a republic, right? And it all went to hell. We screwed it up for ourselves. And so let's try this other thing. And the issue with that, though, is that on the one hand, if everybody is equal, if everybody is special, right? If everybody is treated in such a way that the expectation is, is that the outcome will always be equitable across the board, you will never get fully equitable treatment because we are fundamentally different. But if you hope for a guy, I don't care if it's Donald Trump, I don't care if it's Adolf Hitler, I don't care if it's some avatar of beneficent monarchy, whatever it may be. But if, if the plan is to concentrate the ability to fulfill the will of all of these people and their needs and their wants and their various divergent value systems, and you want to concentrate all that decision-making authority and capability into one guy or into one very small sort of manner in class, you're also setting yourself for a recipe for disaster because they have human wills. They have human needs and requirements. And so what you, you, you will never get this perfect statesman, this perfect beneficent king who is capable of making the right decisions for all of us. You will never get a, a perfect concentration of humanity who are capable of making decisions that rationally balances their own emotional needs and wants with the benefit of the collective. And so we live somewhere in the middle in terms of these are really the range of options that we have to deal with. And one of the reasons I really love America is I think that Fundamentally, it was the best attempt we've yet come up with, and maybe we can be better. Maybe we can do it a little better. But fundamentally, it was the best attempt we had at least to, to, to balance those two extremes and to say, how do we give people the ability 
at scale to determine and dictate their will, but also create pockets of innovation where things can be done right, things can be done wrong, but at least we learn from them and we continue to sort of fail forward and iterate forward as a society in the right direction towards serving the needs of everybody. We got off track almost immediately after the signing of the constitution. And and the whole thing has been a desire to get back, you know, a desire to evolve and iterate in that direction. But if, if we set that as our, as our lodestar, if we set that as the point, all these other practical things, and I'm not an expert in all that stuff, right? I'm not an expert in finance. I'm not an expert in human health and medicine, all this other stuff. But I do think at least the fundamental mechanisms that we try to resolve these issues are commerce and war. And I don't like war. I don't want to see people die. Friends of mine have died in the last 20 years. I think we all know at least somebody from a first party perspective or somebody whose family was completely upended by the devastation of 20 years of conflict in the Middle East and in Central Asia. Did we have to do it? Maybe we thought we did then. We look back and we say, probably not. We don't know what that butterfly effect is, but we do know the tangible effects in our lives have been. War sucks. Sometimes it's moral. Rarely, though, is it moral. Mostly, it's in pursuit of we think we're doing the right thing, but we're not doing the right thing because we take our eye off the ball that human life and liberty is the most important thing. It's what we're all here for. And so if we set war aside as a viable tool, we're left with how do we meet our needs commercially in a way that sort of rationally squares the circle of our ridiculous needs, our ridiculous wants, but our ability to also get along and function together. And that's where I think refocusing a little bit around the ways in which we manufacture, the ways in which we conduct ourselves on a global scale and within our own country, the ways in which we resolve our needs commercially in the most rational way to where the maximum number of people possible feel that their needs and wants are met. That's probably the, the, the best common ground we can get to without totally giving ourselves over to mob rule or totally concentrating all the power in the hands of a few people. Maybe the first king would do a great job. Maybe even the second king, if his daddy taught him to be a good king. But by the third generation, the fourth generation, the fifth generation, the trappings of power start to corrupt. And so well, the, we, we find ourselves in a situation. How do we, how do we kind of stay in that middle where the least number of people are impacted negatively by well, whatever uh, system we occupy? A couple of things here. I thought that was really well said, and I would love Apex's response as well, but a couple of things. Uh, there was a comment over there from a God Word podcast. I guess that is uh, somebody who wants to get closer to God, and I think that that is a beautiful thing, as I'm sure it is for you, God Word. But uh, his comment was that things would be different if we were ruled by our own people. Uh, you know, Take that like however you want. But the idea there is that, at least in my perspective, we're not living in an island anymore. We're not living in the Middle Ages. We're not even living, you know, in the 1700s where things are not as connected as they are today. With connection comes capital, comes banking, comes all of these modern things for good or for ill. And the problem as I see it is that no matter who it is, because uh, like uh, I think that any gap of power that's going to exist, whether it's a gap of power in terms of territories on the on the world, or if it's a gap of power in terms of there is a job out there to do a certain thing that's probably going to exploit some people, it's probably going to create havoc and chaos down the road, and you know what? Just because everybody looks like everybody else, nobody's going to do that job in an interconnected society. Nobody's going to seize that opportunity. I find that to be completely ridiculous, and that is the primary uh, uh, thing 
thing that I want to bring up whenever those kind of uh, points get uh, thrown in, because I really don't see how you are going to be able to prevent that kind of thing, again, unless you're living in a totally isolated, you know, island or planet or whatever, where there's been this very strict religious mm -hmm. rule for a long time and everybody's on the same page, or unless you're living in the Satya Yuga, Satya means truth, where everybody's just psychic and can tell whatever, whatever every person's thinking, you know? Like, that is really the only scenario where I see something like that working, you know, either going back or going, either you want to go back 300 years ago, or you want to go back, uh, like, I don't know, uh, 100,000 years ago, you know, back during Atlantis or whatever. But, you know, like, if we're talking about going to a scenario where this is going to work, I just don't see it. But anyway, that was just a quick aside uh, to address that. Mm -hmm. But also, when it comes to what you were bringing up about the dictators, I mean, this is what I always talk about on BTR. I think it does relate to Xi Jinping uh, getting rid of the uh, term limits for himself. And one other thing to bring up here, and I do have comments over here from my CIA handler. Uh, I have some comments uh, of questions to ask you. But uh, yeah, and people were also like, you probably saw the chat earlier, you know, I'm sure half of them think that you're uh, that you're a CIA agent. So that's uh, just want to bring that out there as well. Everybody, here's the thing, everybody who's going to be on the show, who's against, you know, anything that happens with China, or who's like, more in a, you know, anybody who has pictures of themselves in some glasses they're gonna think automatically this guy's uh you know w wired up but anyway just want to throw that out there as well because i listened to the chat and the chat should listen to me as well anyway uh that that being aside <laughs> yes no no i'm gonna i'm gonna throw the gauntlet down anyway when we're talking about when we're talking about uh, people staying in this permanent state, kind of like Joseph Stalin. From what I understand, what ended up happening in the USSR at that time, and uh, I am originally from the USSR, I was born in St. Petersburg, Russia in 1988. So anyway, what ended up happening around that time of uh, Stalin, and my grandma was born in 41, so she just like barely remembers it. But anyway, what ended up happening during that time is Stalin started getting more and more paranoid. He started slicing off various people who got into certain positions Positions. So if you were going to go work for the K NKVD, as it was called at the time, now it was, then it was KGB, now it was FSB. But uh, when you were working there, you kind of knew that your head was going to be on the chopping block pretty soon. And that doesn't mean you're getting fired. That means you're getting fired at. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the people who took those jobs, they already knew, but they couldn't say no either because they'd get killed as well. So it's a very interesting thing that happened when it comes to who are the people that end up surviving. Khrushchev survived and he acted like mm -hmm. the fool for a long time, which may have been how he ended up surviving. Mostly the people that end up surviving in these kind of things are going to, like I said in the beginning of the stream, they're going to kiss your ass. They're going to tell you whatever you want to hear. Same thing with the people who were telling Mao, you know, that everything's going great, there aren't any famines, all that kind of stuff. So, the last thing that I want to touch on there before I bring it to Apex, and we also have, um, uh, we also have uh, Remus, the great Remus joining us as well, but anyway, what I... Hello. Oh, hello, Remus, please shut off the uh, laptop or whatever, because there's sound coming from there, everybody... Yeah, no, subscribe. Oh, okay, everybody subscribe right now. So, anyway, the point that I'm getting to there is not even the paranoia of uh, Stalin. The point is that during that time, there were people who, you know, scientists who were given caviar, who were given all kinds of goodies in order to produce the atom bomb or something like it, in order to produce weaponry that would, um, th that would be very advantageous for the USSR to hold. Most of the things, from what I understand, that they got 
were from the Americans. Sometimes Americans just willingly gave it to them, or sometimes, you know, they just stole various technology as was going on through the Cold War. But as far as the fire in one's belly, as far as the thumos to be able to produce these uh, advanced technologies from what i understand there was not really that much there and i don't think it was the matter that the scientists in russia were stupid i think that they were real really brilliant people but i wonder if there is a change of incentive that happens under a dictatorship versus under the kind of climate that america had and yes you could say like the german nazi scientists okay fine operation paperclip i get it but if we're specifically talking about the environment that was happening in soviet russia at the time it did not produce great technology. It did not produce people that were willing to put in the time to develop something uh, extraordinary, no matter how pampered they got. So the reason I'm bringing that up is I wonder, uh, do you think that there's going to be a similar thing that's going to happen with China if the stagnation would start from just having somebody in power never leaving? My, uh, my greatest fear, I guess, from a national security standpoint for the U.S. is is that China does figure that out, right? That somehow the business class and the political class and the warrior class all find ways to get along. To this point, the CCP has kind of sort of figured it out, um, not in any sort of moral or ethical or uh, way that's beneficent to, to, to humanity. Uh, but to a certain extent, and we saw it with the Soviets, is that fear is a remarkable driver uh, of cohesion and of unified forward action to some extent. But its greatest weakness is also that it breeds a very sort of quiet dissension and you can only keep that under wraps for so long. And China faces two, <clears throat> China faces two things that I'm betting long-term hamper their ability to really step forward and dominate the world in the same way that the United States has to, I think we've left Pax Americana, but for that time, that, that sort of 50 to 60 years post-World War II, right up until the War on Terror, uh, where the U.S. was kind of sort of the beneficent hegemon of the world, uh, to the extent we weren't doing terrible things elsewhere, which we continue to do in a lot of places. But by and large, there was an era of somewhat stability um, that was brought about by United States Soviets, everything kind of rolled up under one of those two things, or was at least defined by the opposition or connection to one of those two spheres. And I think that's what China is aiming for here. China doesn't want a unipolar world. They don't want to be the only power because so much of their power and so much of their current financial capability and so much of the importance of the CCP as a, what I consider sort of a transnational criminal organization is derived from the economic benefits that come from being connected to the United States and being connected to the consumptive appetites of the West. And I think they understand that. Um, in the United States, we need to find a way to iterate ourselves, I think, moving forward and say, okay, it's not a unipolar anymore, but we can have a regime that's built on coercion. We cannot have a regime that's built on fear because like with the Soviet Union, that's how you stifle innovation. The Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was never a great economic power in the sense of being able to convince people to cooperate with them on the basis of trade. Everything was fear-based. And Russians are notorious for building like really reliable, really good weapons, right? 
the if the M16 or what we now you know sort of the AR15 platform is very representative of American engineering and the way in which we view the world, the AK47 very much is a product of the Soviet mentality, which is it's cheap, it works, I can bury it in the sand for 20 years, pull it out, and it's probably still going to go bang when I pull the trigger. And it's a question of tolerances. It's a question of capabilities. It's a question of what the thing was even designed to do. And so that that sort of that communist mentality was build it cheap enough that it works, that, but build it cheap enough that we can scale it fast and kick a whole bunch of units out, right? Stalin, I think, was the one that said quantity has a quality all of its own. That's very different than what you want in a capitalist or economic paradigm where individuals want things that work for them. And to the extent that it doesn't work, they want to be able to cheaply replace it. And that's where I think China has got it more right than the Soviets. But at the same time, the very severe limiting power factor is the, the extent to which power is wielded against the people who actually have to make this stuff. And I think if you repress the people long enough, if you don't provide at some level for their, their, their needs and their desire for upward mobility and their desire to better themselves than where they're at today. If you don't provide for that, then you're going to find yourself in a situation where one day they're standing outside the palace with torches and pitchforks, and there's not a thing you can do because the generals have abandoned you. The, the guys to push buttons on missiles, launch systems, have abandoned you. And then a new thing comes into play. And so it, we find ourselves in this very interesting moment in history where I think the Westphalian order has largely begun its collapse because the end state of the Westphalian order has been this hyper interdependence, this hyper globalization. We have all spread ourselves too thin so that a contagion that weakens the global system as we've seen with the pandemic, uh, and not really the pandemic, to, but our reaction to the pandemic, the ways in which we have declared this to be a pandemic and said, let's disrupt the ways in which we cooperate on a trade basis and a political basis on a financial basis. And, and everybody take a different approach. Everybody just do whatever they want. And China stepped forward and said, we're going to continue to dominate. But I think they've expended themselves too far. And from the United States standpoint, I think if we just say, look, what are the ways in which we can bring this thing back, utilize the power that we have as free people, more or less free people. We're not really free, but we're more free than most people throughout human history have been. But utilize that power of self-interest and, and, and the paradigm that we're able to operate under to create things of value for one another. If we find a way to do that, if we find a way to scale food systems back and decentralize risk, decentralize energy, decentralize all these things and, and say, let's break away from this idea that one tiny little sphere of power and, and capital can concentrate and, and centralize and distribute down everything we need. We will survive long after as a country, if we can do that, long after the CCP is overthrown and taken to the streets and dealt with like tyrants and dictators tend to be dealt with. But if we can't get to that state, then what I think we're going to continue to see is this, this, this cancer eat both us and China alive while the rest of the world tries to figure out what to do as, as they begin this period of sort of durable disorder. Uh, that follows from the great powers collapsing or rotting from the inside out. Because I think that's that, that's that's the decision point we're really at right now that will determine what the next quarter century to half century probably looks like for most of the people of the world. That was really well said. I want to go to Apex for either a response to that or what we talked about previously, but then I definitely want to get to Remus. Uh, so Apex, go for it, buddy. 
and then yeah, the CIA, I mean, and then the CIA handler questions that I get. But anyway, <laughs> he's probably giving me the same questions. The handler, <laughs> yeah, hide the earpiece in your ear. You know, <laughs> that's right. But, um, that's pretty obvious. It's Samsung, man. It's all it's all Korean, oh, man. Oh, it's probably made in China too. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I think that put very simply is whatever, whether it's democracy or monarchy or whatever like what what matters more than the procedure is that the per the self-interest of the ruler aligns with the self-interest of the ruled you know it, it however you want to implement that and there's various ways to do so with varying levels of effectiveness you really have to make it so that because you know Huntsman makes the point that you can't you cannot you cannot base a political system off of the idea that the rulers are just going to end up being these perfect people time and time and time again yeah you occasionally get an augustus or whatever you know once in a blue moon maybe once in a century if you're lucky but really you have to build a system where even the most craven individual at the top is going to act in such a way that doesn't harm the people that this person rules over. I mean, okay, sure, maybe he's snorting coke off hookers on the side, but in terms of how much societal damage this person is doing, it's not that significant. Um, so, so. I always think about it in terms of incentive structures. You know, I mean, think think of a corporation Absolutely. today. A lot of corporations will, or I shouldn't say a lot, some corporations will give the their employees part stock ownership in uh, in the company. Some funds that. Um, you know, so look, if you look at like, say a private equity fund, for instance, a lot of times the people who are running this fund are locked in because they, their compensation is based off of how the fund performs. Their incentives are aligned with the incentives of their investors. Now, of course, then, you know, we're going to ignore the question of whether or not they're doing what's best for the companies they're investing in. But you understand the idea that there are structures that align incentives and there are structures that do not. Um, and, and, you know, more than I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm less, I shouldn't say I'm not concerned at all about, you know, what procedure you use to get there. I think some procedures are in general better than others, but I, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't think democracy is irreparable. I don't think that democracy is perfect. I don't, you know, I think there are probably scenarios where monarchies are probably better. Um, there are, you know, I've made the argument that in a society in which a small group of people control huge amounts of capital and, and more importantly, huge amounts of control over the narrative is democracy ends up on a national level, at least looking almost like laundered oligarchy. Um, and, and in many cases, you're trying to look less at, I look less at the procedure than I do at the incentive structures. And I think that one of the chief failings of the recent um, American governments is that 
the incentives of the rulers are, are very much opposed to the incentives of the rules, um, which is that the, the, the endless pursuit of power and profit at the expense of any kind of, of, of wonder or, 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 you know, Huntsman, you mentioned earlier about, you know, technologies effectively are, are never developed for, for any, you know, they're, or they're co-opted into the use to expand power or profit almost always. Um, and so I, I think that when, when, when you're looking at what's wrong with the, you know, what's wrong with America right now, it's that the incentives are all out of whack. Um, and, and I think that more so than, you know, putting the right people in power or, or, you know, cause again, like you can't, all right, maybe you put the right people in power. Maybe you, you find an Augustus and he ends up becoming the next Caesar of America and then it renews or whatever. And then what happens afterwards? Um, and, and, you know, you, you go down the same path again. Mm. So this, the, the, the sustainable building, sustainable states relies on good governance, which relies on incentives being aligned between the rulers and the ruled. And, Part of that is going to depend on on what is the ethical vision. I mean, I think that a chief part of um, of 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 a, of a healthy society is asking what 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 are the conditions necessary for human flourishing. What are the conditions necessary mm-hmm. to allow people to develop into the best versions of themselves, both morally and talent wise? You know, developing your unique talents and adding something to society. Um, and and I, I think that one of the reasons why you get such visceral, visceral responses, excuse me, to the state of America today is that I think that a lot of people feel that America as a country has wholly abandoned human flourishing as a goal. Um, and I think it's, it's somewhat reasonable to see this in, in, in you know, you know, you've got left behind towns that have been completely abandoned and are now ravaged by opioids. You have cities that are have crumbling infrastructure and crime problems. You have, you know, suburbs that no one can afford anymore. You have uh, a broken retirement system, a healthcare system that puts one in every three people into crippling medical debt. I mean, you know, the, these these systems that are supposed to just work so that you can deal with, you know, more important things, you know, regarding that flourishing so that you can actually have the ability to go out and, and, and become the best version of yourself. They've all just kind of failed. And I think that a lot of people feel that it's unfair that there's a small group of people who have the resources to be able to say, oh yeah, I can become the best version of myself if I want to, because I, you know, I can afford all of this stuff. And, and I, I live in a place where there's the resources for this and I have the peer group for it and all of that. And I mean, I don't know if, if, if anyone here has read like a Leon Cryer or, or some of the other you know people engaged in, in looking at community and, and things like that, but, you know, really, looking at what it takes to to bring about that healthy society i i think is is the key and and listen there's in in the same way that there's a lot of different healthy diets you can have a lot of different healthy societies we're not we're not saying that it's like copy and paste one size fits all it's not going to be um and 
So how, you know, if, if you ask, well, what's the answer in America? I mean, there's going to be debate, but even if you find the answer in America, if they, if let's say Germany decides to do this, it's, you can't copy it. You got to figure it out, you know, for yourself. Mm. Um, and so really, I, I think that again, looking at asking the substantive question of what constitutes genuine human flourishing and then how do you align the incentives of the rulers with the rules in the sense that they're trying to allow for the most people possible to become the best versions of themselves that's what i think is is the most important those mm. those incentive structures um and i've been Definitely. rambling for way too long so no but I that will, is, uh, that that is a great point uh, i mean as far as becoming better version of themselves i think we see that in terms of strength and ability never seen on the face of the earth and the space marines uh whose avatar remus uh ventanus is proudly sporting I, here <laughs> I, I keep looking at his image, like at his Abby on the screen and just thinking, you know, in a lot of ways, this, these are my people, you know, if, if you're just oh, going to yeah. roll with space Marines as an Abby, I'm, I'm good with that. So Remus, what's up, buddy? Um, my, my audio is not going to be very great. I'm in stairs right now. Give me a oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This no problem. Streaming live from uh, an amphitheater. <laughs> <laughs> All right. While Remus is uh, going through the stairs, just want to tell everybody, don't forget to subscribe. Keep subscribing because I got a comment over here from PCSS who says that I do not shill enough. Can you believe that? He is absolutely right. I do not <laughs> shill enough. So here's what I'm going to do. Look at our... Um, okay. Oh, shit. Oh, hold on. What's going on? Here you go. I lost it. I lost it. Hold on. I have it now. Okay, here it is. Here it is. You see this moth over here, Huntsman? So this moth we did in honor of Brittany Venti, who... Uh, appeared in our streams and she's going to be appearing this monday with uh, uncle doomer so here we go this is the moth look at this look at this beautiful moth so this was the craft that my father created my father alexander pliak of brilliant artist so you can get this moth if you become a 20 dollar patron patreon.com slash break the rules $5 is also going to give you a lot of good stuff. MP3 episodes uh, after the streams come out. We do an audio version of them. And you get uh, our Discord secret areas there. Exclusive uh, streams only for the patrons. And uh, let's see what else. For $30, you are going to get a beautiful print from Giovanni Penichetti, who, uh, unfortunately, I don't know where he is. I mean, the last message that I got from Gio was that, um, let's see over here, was that might be late, was working today. So that was uh, at 5 o'clock. So I'm not sure where Gio is. If anybody could reach him, just let me know. But anyway, uh, you you're going to get a beautiful print from Gio. Here it is. Here is what the print looks like. You guys don't see it on the screen right now, but Huntsman, I can assure you, this is the kind of print that you would want to put behind you in your beautiful office and people were saying by the way in the chat that your office looks too good for like cia the cia does not have that you know that good taste so i'm just i'm uh, i'm admiring the symmetry of it all you know like like the layout is just very well done definitely, well, definitely. I'm, I'm also thank you for zooming in on your face very uh, very beautiful of course <laughs> 
Oh, you're welcome. Yes, I have a very, very, very youthful portrait of Dorian Gray thing going on because I'm 32 years old. But anyway, uh, lastly, $50 patrons are going to get all of that, all of the above, plus they're going to get another custom wooden magnet. So whatever design, if you want a design of a space marine or whatever, my father's going to do his very best to get you the best damn wooden magnet space marine there is. If you want a design of, I don't know, if you want a design of Huntsman's face, I guess you could do that too. I don't know. But anyway... <laughs> no. No, I don't think I don't think you're allowed to volunteer someone. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants that. Let's be real, man. It's like it, you know, it's don't the, the worst the worst part about the worst part about looking like you're in the CIA is like looking like a bargain basement version of Jason Statham. So Oh come the fuck on. You are you you are a handsome it's like the, devil. It's like the Walmart it's like the Walmart clearance rack version of Jason Statham. It's terrible. Oh, I'm not even know. that good of a driver. I think you're selling yourself short, bud. Yes, you know you are. You 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 are selling yourself extreme extremely short. But anyway, um, okay. And again, oh, and also they can get a custom upon request a custom um, a print of a thumbnail that my dad painted, as well as Warhammer 40k figures painted by Jules Hamilton, as well as another just, painting from Gio. I just read the comment that I look like I'm living in a Wes Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. oh my god that is a, that's a really niche comment but i'm super glad that i got it that's uh i don't know if that says good things or bad things about my taste in films but that, that was a damn good comment well played. absolutely absolutely wow. all right all right cool. so i think remus remus i think that you you may not be in the amphitheater anymore so let us know your thoughts and there is no sign from Remus at all. So I'm going to move on to my CIA handler questions right now while Remus still gets sorted. And by the way, Lisa, streamlabs.com slash break the rules. Here is the link. See if this works for the donations. And again, I really appreciate you donating. Anybody else like donating the super chats, sneeding the super chats our way. It is incredibly helpful because we are growing the show. We want this to be one of the greatest podcasts of all time. And I think we are making it so by bringing all these people together. Anyway, uh, CIA handler question number one okay he says good stuff okay so that's a pat on that's a pat on the back okay good thank you very much good stuff i definitely like to keep hearing america's weaknesses so we can improve and then shift to china's vulnerabilities as well but balancing between both would be great then he says also later on if talking china problems ask about regional uh regional factions in china particularly things like shanghai beijing divide and the different factions in china the different families that jockey for political power and their patrons. So that was a lot to take in. But any anything there that you would want to uh, go for, uh, go for it. And again, everybody subscribe. Well, I'll be very upfront about the fact that I don't know at a detailed level which family corresponds with what to, to some extent, right? But what China is, is very, and that's an extremely intelligent comment in the sense of it is like any particularly communist regime, very factionalized, but it's along the lines of industry and industry and geography mutually influence one another, right? So what you've seen so far, and it has only worked to an extent, is that you have a largely 
pro-capitalist, if not pro-capitalist, at least somewhat suspicious of everything we do serves the empire, right? Mentality in a Hong Kong, for example, which is why Hong Kong in some ways is very ungovernable and required a massive crackdown to exist, right? You have a, uh, a very strong business class influence versus what you would call maybe the manner and class or the political class that occupies Beijing. And so you do have these centers of power that are largely allowed to operate more or less unchecked in pursuit of uh, promoting pro-business goals. And that's what the autonomous regions are largely about, things like Shenzhen, right? That's why we've seen Shenzhen be, and by, by a lot of global economic metrics, the ways in which we measure the economic health of a given area, we've seen Shenzhen become just this absolutely unbelievably remarkable success. Because by and large, it's been allowed to operate the way in which it needs to. And as long as they don't get too far out of line and too sort of uppity against the regime, uh, they're allowed to do what they want. Because overall, that's the trade-off. You give people some freedom and it enhances the power of the ruling class as long as they serve the interests of the ruling class. And earlier I said my greatest fear is that the political class, the military class, and the business class all learn how to get along and, and really start to synthesize and rationalize. Uh, these these fundamentally mutually competing interests and get to a place of how do all three agree to, to the trade-offs? And the United States, in a very perverse and weird way, we have squared that circle to some extent by mainly via the military-industrial class. But now we're seeing, you know, Eisenhower warned us about that in the 50s. But now what we're seeing is it's the tech oligarchs that have sort of stepped forward and become the new military-industrial complex where China still hasn't rationalized and figured a lot of that out. Um, it doesn't make sense for a business leader, if he manufactures cell phones in a factory in the Shenzhen region, to subscribe to a trade policy of, let's shut down the port of Vienti and distress test it and see what happens to exports and see what happens to commercial ocean carriers. Well, that doesn't benefit the business owner, but he's got to go along with it because he's somewhat scared of stepping out of line. And I think we are seeing very slowly and quietly a bit of a uh, a bit of a maybe a burgeoning revolt happening within the non-political class of China. You're you're seeing um, the Jack Ma's of the world, right? Be mm. be stuffed into lockers, so to speak, in the Beijing high school and neutralized, and saying, "Okay, remember, you are the example now. You were supposed to serve the will of the people, and you shit talk the financial class." in Shanghai and you shit talk the regime and you embarrassed us on the world stage and said, we don't know how to have a financial system that can compete with the West's. And so Jack Ma had to be made an example of possibly the most powerful businessman in the world had to be made an example of, but you can only do that so many times before the various other centers of power realize they have more power than maybe they think they did. And they begin to find ways to act in concert with one another. I think that's already happening. A, I forget his name now, but a mega, mega mogul in Chinese food production just got imprisoned for years for dissidents and dissent against the regime. This is a guy who I think it's last count was like 15 or 20 percent of all China's pork production. He controlled. And he is a longtime dissident. He's a longtime guy who's known to have been sort of step out of line against the CCP, even though he's a party member. But he had to be marginalized. He had to be isolated. And it seems like it feels like maybe that there is this, an increasing pattern as as Xi's regime carries on, as he begins to exceed 
the term limits, such as it is, right? But he begins to exceed what the Chinese people have come to recognize as a normal sort of period of power before there's a transfer of power to a new ruler. And she is getting to the end of that. He's getting more aggressive on the global stage. He's getting more tendentious and hostile. And that is worrying a lot of people who built their centers of power around peace and cooperative agreement with the rest of the world. And so she and the political class are now making these decisions that are driving wedges into the bases of power and money and resources that have made these other centers of power very predominant and very comfortable. And I do, so I do see without being, even being able to name names as far as family names and things like that, but I do see very much a, uh, a revolt of sorts developing. And I think we, we could end that as is often the case in communist, <laughs> communist paradigms, you, you're probably going to see a period of purge and then a period of uh, internal dissension. And that is one of the two weaknesses that China faces right now outside of the demographic time bomb that they're staring at. You can only have a one-child policy for so long and favor a nation of males for so long before you start to get a serious problem of how do we sustain our society mm. as, an, as an organic ethnic collective, as opposed to the United States, which we are actually growing again. We're now above replacement rate as far as the number of people that we need to perform the tasks of society. But it's not because the traditional demographics of the U.S. are having more people. It's because we are still a nation that imports a lot of people. And a lot of the demographics that are coming into the United States are having children at a far faster rate than the, than the maybe legacy demographics. But as a country, the United States is still growing. China's going the opposite direction. And I think it's about like 2032 is where those lines cross, where the number of workers needed to be in the workforce is still increasing in China. They're still doing okay in that regard. But at 2032 is where those curves start to cross and they, they begin to enter a real tangible demographic decline. And there's a lot that's going to shake out in the next 11 years between when that supposedly is going to happen. But I don't think it's necessarily going to be peaceful. And we need to be prepared for... Mm. Go ahead. A pith crew says, easy, clone the men. That's... Uh... I don't know if that's possible, though. I mean, although who knows? Like, they're doing all kinds of weird experiments with human, human animal. It sounds great. Human animal hybrids. So that's another part of this whole thing that we haven't really factored in. How much a lot of technology that would otherwise be thought of as forbidden, something that, let's say, Americans wouldn't be able to stomach, something that uh, the Chinese government would have no problem experimenting with and implementing, and uh, what repercussions that may have. You're starting into a, a domain there that's very gray between practical, tangible output and what we're willing to tolerate from an ethical perspective as a people. Fundamentally, and there is no dispute that culturally the Chinese are very different people than we are as Americans or, or largely anybody who comes out of these sort of Western traditions. Um, if you can, if you can, if you can watch Lord of the Rings and identify with, you know, if you can identify with Aragorn and the men of the West and say that they're on a righteous mission, if you recognize yourself in that, you come probably from a certain cultural tradition, certainly the one that Tolkien was writing out of. If you can look at, if you can look at the hordes that are attacking them and saying, you know, there is a perspective where people could say, and I've seen it argued, where 
you're coming to you're coming to dominate us and you're coming to kill us. We don't see ourselves as the bad guy. We're just trying to survive. But you're coming to kill us and us and our King Sauron are going to stop you from doing that. Right. So depending on what cultural tradition you come out of determines the extent to which you say it is okay or not okay to do these things ethically. Because whether a thing is unethical or ethical doesn't change the fact that it can or can't be done from a pragmatic, practical perspective, right? That's just laws of physics and, and the extent to which human beings are willing to maybe enforce and invoke suffering upon other people to get to that. It is absolutely evil and morally reprehensible on every way, shape, form, or fashion. The experiments that were conducted by Unit 731 by the Japanese Imperials, mm-hmm. the things that the Nazis conducted at their concentration camps under Mengele and others, the things that they did to advance rocketry. There is no justification for that from an ethical, moral perspective. I would be happy having none of those advances. I don't give a shit what they are. If those atrocities had not been committed against human beings. But that is separate also from the practical impact. And if you have to, if, you, if you're going to analyze, can they do this? Should they do this? Will they do this? Those are all very different questions. Because the should is always up for debate. The can is less up for debate. You can do a thing or not do a thing. Whether you're comfortable with the parameters on which you do that is a different matter. And so as we begin to look at what these other cultures are willing to do, the perspective is not, can they do it? Should they do it? It's simply going to be, will they do it? What loss will they incur? What strike karmically against their own humanity are they willing to incur? And if they're willing to do that, if they reject any sort of ethical framework outside of power, then you can bet your ass that they're going to try to do it to sustain themselves and survive and to increase power. I don't think the average Chinese person would, but I do think that the CCP as a political and ideological construct, I think they're willing to do far more than the average person is comfortable with. In the uh, same light, and I'm going to bring this uh, to Remus as well, whose audio has finally improved, finally out of the amphitheater. This is from, um, uh, and we're, we are going to have Jason Giorgiani on uh, August 31st, so it's not going to be this week, uh, this coming week, it's going to be the week after. But anyway, from his book Prometheanism, it says over here, uh, whereas before CRISPR, gene therapy on humans was achieving 2% correction, the genome of 80% of the cells in the subject can now be corrected or re-engineered. If desired, this can include the cells of... Uh, uh, g- uh, germline genetic material such as sperm and eggs, which would pass any genetically engineered change down onto the offspring of the human subject of the CRISPR editing. Not surprisingly, in 2015, China became the first country in which scientists legally and openly began gene editing human embryos using CRISPR. CCR5 was the gene edited target in the first human embryos edited in China. It is the receptor for HIV and removing it from the genome of the edited embryos immunized the genetically engineered children against the AIDS virus. So that is interesting. I didn't know that that was the case. Uh, let's see. So then, let's see, I'm going to scroll down here. It was not be. It was not long before Chinese corporations such as Darwin Life and OvaScience were promising their clients designer babies with all kinds of genetic modifications, including enhanced IQ within a decade, well before 2030. So I don't know. This is pretty... Uh, pretty interesting but pretty scary stuff so i just wanted to uh, give a little preview of that and uh remus uh what's it's almost like this question was made for me <laughs> yes go go ahead buddy thank you so much the, yeah with the space um 
So yeah, this is a tough one, right? Because I don't want this to exist. This is not something that I like. It's horrifying. But if this exists, you better get this right. You better get this right quick. Because whoever... Listen, if you can genetically alter things, that's what a space marine is. Okay? It's a person that is taken and changed into something else that can mm-hmm. do shit that is terrifying. And if you can make things like that, it doesn't matter what it is. There's a million ways to manifest this. It's horrifying just to conceive of. Oh, we can... Any Anything germline, too, that's scary. Because if you can... Any, any weapon that's designed to attack at that level, it's, it's terrifying because that just affects your the next... That affects everyone forever. Like there's, it's it's an it's a before and after point, right? If you can change your people potentially, or even your soldiers, or your a, a, any country that has this is at an advantage that's un, unfathomable. It's literal genetic event. You're creating Ubermensch if you want, compared to compared to the ones that they're that they would be. Uh, uh, in contention with if you're dealing with non-altered people versus altered people that's just terrifying right and even the 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 um i guess the the ramifications for like the populace right knowing that your government can do this potentially right it's yeah. just freaky i like uh, yeah this is not something that i think is like a good direction but it's uh, at the same time i don't think most of these things are good directions it's just things that are going to happen i guess so it's but, like but, it's momentum by the way i had to raise the audio of your mic because uh, oh, it, it, it is low i can oh, you, okay all right i mean that it is very interesting to think about the ramifications here i mean if we are going to go the route of all of this is not an accident it's not just some random uh, mutations that there is a reason why we are here on this planet if we take that perspective then there is something to the idea of having a human develop certain qualities over time if you believe in reincarnation let's say develop over time through yeah yeah through learning uh, various things this as opposed to same thing it's the way you guys think of uh, psychedelics it's, it's cheating yeah so in in, in that sense be, i'm not sure gods without earning it and I, and as a result it will destroy you 100 percent. it's not you you have not if you haven't earned the weapon you're you're going to kill yourself another you, you don't know what you're doing you don't know what you're using it's like it's like teaching um somebody who's psychopathic and sadistic but good at masking that how to do uh jujitsu or or how to do like a, an extreme uh, a hard form of karate or something they're just going to kill people 100 percent. i mean that's it seems what, that's a, very imbalanced this yeah, whole thing but i but i don't know huntsman upon this uh, revelation of remus is here any any thoughts before we move on i guess to the last uh, question here that i had I, I I agree uh, with what Remus is saying is is and, and that's where and, and I agree also with with Apex on this is that fundamentally humans are governed by my thesis is we're governed by two things above the level of self interest we'll say right as far as motivating factors um, and incentives is one of them right and a constant desire to push forward towards whatever goal it is we've established for ourselves. And that that's really where the domain of morals steps in. And that's the point I was making about, can we do a thing or should we do a thing are usually two very separate issues. I don't believe that humans 
I don't think I, I don't think we should ever be advanced to a level beyond what we should be capable of. There is a very strong strain of thought. And when you go down like the accelerationism and neo-reactionary movement rabbit holes and things like that, there's a very strong particular strain of these things, which is like we we can achieve utopia by mapping the mental genome, so to speak, of humans and being able to transliterate that into ones and zeros and thus achieve immortality. Right. I can upload my brain to the cloud, which is, you know, that's what Elon's after with Neuralink and some of these other things. And I think anybody who's involved with things like the 2045 initiative. They, they see that as the goal. And, and I think it's largely, in their mind, a beneficent goal, right? We can't make the human body perfectible, but we can certainly preserve the mind and, and the will of the human. And I think in their mind and in their ethical and moral framework, that's okay. But I think that the more you chase towards perfection, the more you chase towards perfection, the more you try to carve off or sand off the hard edges of a system, I think you begin to find at that point that you begin to shave away, particularly when it comes to human systems, the essential humanity that more or less keeps us in check from killing each other or from totally trying to dominate one another. And I think you have to have those points of failure. I think you have to have decay in the system. I think humans have to be able to die. I think machines have to be able to break because at some level, the longer we go, the more we are going to try to find ways to achieve some level of non-empathetic superiority over others. Because as humans, and this is what religion attempts to square, this is what a lot of our systems of philosophy have attempted to resolve, is what will humans do in the presence of pure pure morality? What will we do in the absence of morality? And what will we do in the absence of mortality versus always being aware of it? By and large, I think history has taught us that we have we operate best as a people when we make peace with the fact that you have whatever time you have, you have whatever tools you have to do the best you can within that time. But if we begin to operate outside that framework of that, which whatever we were genetically designed for, let's enhance it. Like, let's do everything we can. I don't know how big I could get lifting weights, but I do know that at a certain point, if I put in enough time and effort and discipline, I can naturally increase myself to a certain amount. And that amount of muscle mass will be bigger and stronger than other people. And it will be less and less than other people because I was born to be a certain way. And I think by, from a philosophical standpoint, the framework and the system under which humans operate best is a recognition that we are born in certain ways equal life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. That's the output of the enlightenment thinking with John Locke and those guys, right? It's the foundation. We reckon we, we enshrined it first in the Magna Carta back in the 1200s. I think it was what, 1215, 1217, something like that. And then we re-enshrined it and adapted it. And I think even advanced the ball further forward with the U.S. Constitution. But you can trace a direct lineage of thought from people are born in some ways fundamentally equal in terms of their rights, in terms of their ability to try to pursue things. Where we are not born as equal in aptitude, we're not born equal in, and particularly in this world, in I was born in America and I'm so blessed for that because I have the ability to do and say certain things that people born in other places can't. But we also have an obligation and responsibility, I think, to not push ourselves beyond a certain level. And I, and I think at some level, that's what Remus is driving at. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, if I mistake what you're saying, is that there comes a point where we push things so far 
that we strip our, we, we find some way to strip ourselves of humanity. We find some ways to strip ourselves of the natural guardrails that we are born with to not commit evil upon one another, to not do things that are fundamentally destructive in both a practical and a moral standpoint to one another and to society at large. And if we can find a way to edge right up to that limit and, and pursue iterative or evolutionary advancement of ourselves and of our societies, that's fine. But at the point at which we begin to concentrate too much into perfection or too much onto the negative things that we need to resolve, we begin to lose that sort of essential spark of humanity that says we are who we are, perfectly imperfect, and we got to find ways to, to get together. And so when I talk about supply chain, when I talk about the great geopolitical game and the things that we're up to, it is all in pursuit of preserving, not necessarily America, although I am very nationalistic at heart. But I'm not nationalistic to the extent that I'm willing to visit atrocities on others to advance my own country at all. Because fundamentally, a person who was born in China, a person who was born in Russia, a person who was born in Senegal, fundamentally, that person is the same as me in terms of worth and merit and value. What they do with that is up to them. But that doesn't strip them of the certain basic natural rights that they are born with. And if we begin to advance people beyond the evolutionary and genetic things that we are born to, if we begin to create ubermenches and superhumans, and we begin to chase that as the model of perfection, you very quickly begin to bifurcate into a society where there are the haves and the have-nots, the capable and the non-capable. And you end up in a caste system that visits misery upon 95% of humanity, but great riches and benefits upon 5%. And I think that is as evil and wrong as anything in the world. So should we pursue that technology? No. Should we pursue perfection? No. Are we going to? Yeah, elements of society or elements of certain countries are going to try. And so we need to find a way to keep like the maximum number of people happy and satisfied as possible while pushing back against things that by and large degenerate us as human beings and turn us into something else fundamentally. That's probably not good or intended by nature or by God if you subscribe to that. But either way, there is a limit that we probably shouldn't go past. Well, this is why I think that history may move in uh, not just cycles. Like I'd say history may move in cycles when it comes to what happens on this planet, perhaps, perhaps not. Mm -hmm. but, history, sure. but history may also move, let's say, upwards or downwards based on our own karma, based on the actions that we do and the situations we find ourselves in, whether the situations are near hopeless or not. It's like uh, Graham Hancock, who we had at the National Arts Club, by the way, I'm the uh, chair of the Art and Technology Committee there at the National Arts Club in the Gramercy Park. But anyway, Graham Hancock, when he came in there, he said that I don't remember which culture this was, but like in a particular culture, they have the idea that when they go into the afterlife, uh, they are asked, you had the chance to be born a human being. What did you do with this wonderful opportunity? You know, like this is in a way I do think a human test, but to the point that you said before with all this various gene editing, things like that, again, this is getting into very murky territory. By no means should you take seriously what I'm about to say. But if if there was an Atlantis, let's say, I can imagine similar things happening there that are happening right now and that may be happening in the future when it comes to like all the legends warning of power being misused and that led to the destruction of this once great civilization where, again, 
to Graham Hancock's point, he talks about there being this giant cataclysm 11,000 years ago. We have certain scab lands we could take a look at on the upper part of the U.S. and Canada that point to there being some, you know, some really... Theory. Yeah, exactly, the Younger Trias impact theory. So his whole take is that there uh, were probably these very advanced coastal civilizations that existed. They got wiped out and the survivors had to start again. And a lot of the things that we are finding today, like uh, various uh, megaliths, unbelievably huge and the people themselves say that they were visited by these gods that they were visited by these uh, beings that brought the civilization to them that brought the system of loss to them medicine all kinds of things where today we're attributing it to the gods you know whatever you want to say but it may be that these beings were also us in a way maybe a more advanced us maybe a maybe a psychically better us or maybe a worse off us i don't know but whichever us there is it may be that these things keep not repeating but rhyming in a way that we do see certain patterns come up again i think so i mean i think that is whether you subscribe to the fact that Viracocha or quetzalcoatl or any of the other sort of uh civilizational saviors that that come to bring advancement or enlightenment to a savage people or to a less advanced people the the premise of that i think is the lesson that the hope is is that you can find ways to advance yourself in meaningfully but at the same time not uh leave others behind or or subject people to unhappiness or to pain and that that's one of the common things when you when you sort of trace what Graham Hancock talks about is is that ascribing civilizational advancement when you're talking about megaliths or anything else right is that there is a turning point where the people are savage they're brutal they've advanced as far as they can and somebody comes along they passes them over that threshold that that enters them into new mysteries of knowledge or that teaches them things scientifically that they didn't know otherwise that's why the stories always commonly say, you know, it's, it's, they brought the gift of language and the gift of mathematics and the gift of science and animal husbandry and whatever it is. It's almost like there is a tradition within these cultures of there is a turning point. Somebody figured out a way to iterate and move the ball forward. And they became the thing of legend because generally they brought advancement and happiness. I and mean, not, not, not just advancement, but in the case tough. of the Maya, we have a galactic calendar. I mean, that is just, you know, that is, that is quite out there. Mm-hmm. And it points, at least to me, that someone's, there being a lot of other. Someone's asking what my opinion on ancient aliens is. <laughs> <laughs> we are the aliens. That's what I, I yeah, think. I don't think. I, I, I'm. I genuinely. I think it's a. It's a. It's the alien thing is just. It, it's reductionary. It makes it so obvious and boring, right? Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. But uh, no, I think it's 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 more complex than that. And I think, yeah, no, I think this this uh, what you're connecting it with, Lev, is the idea of meddling with something that you should not be right this is there are many technologies in my opinion that are essentially pandora's box it's like you can't like once you open this shit it's you 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 have okay now you're in now you're in fucksville now like you 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 blew it sorry now you're doing this instead of what humans are kind of supposed to do which is make life better for themselves you made life um uh like a hell world now like you can't you know uh, it, and to me, like talking about the, you know, if the Chinese are doing this, if, if that stuff's true, right? Uh, even that means that that I imagine that this is being done by other major powers as well, right? And being done 
probably covertly because it's entirely possible for these things to be done covertly. Um, you know, uh, it, to me, it just feels like an arms race, right? You know what I mean? Like these things immediately turn into that because that's kind of the nature of the of the world that we've inherited, which is like when you develop something, how can you use it to, um, it, you know, what is its practical application in terms of defense and also eventually the prosperity of the nation, right? Like how do we use these things? You know, iron is used... Uh, do you think iron was used first to develop weapons or to develop like, uh, uh, like farm equipment and stuff like that? Like, what was the priority? If uh, if 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 if, uh, if it was possible, right? I think the weaponry, spears, things like that, are probably first on the list, um, just because of what, how feeling safe makes a population be able to. I don't know. It's like the the feeling of safety gives the population the, the, the almost the, the, the room to breathe, right? Like we can, we can actually grow now, mm-hmm. right? So that defensive nature is almost like a, a first. It, ca- it has to come from, I need walls first before I can be comfortable enough to actually start building here. Or we need to understand like our, 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 our perimeter before we make camp. Like this is a, this, it's almost an inherent um, uh, impulse of of small groups of human beings they're just going to do that. and that and that works at scale you know so to that's the fear for me is i hear these things and it's like yeah you know what i love warhammer 40,000 it's cool man i like cool big guys ripping shit up it's awesome but would i want to live in that fuck no that sounds terrible god damn no thank you so and and and, and let me tell you boys this shit's not going to be helping me and you it's never for you it's for them. It's for the people who can afford it. It's for the people who develop it, right? They're the ones who take advantage first. So it's not, it's, it's always going to be a top-down situation of who's in control of these things. You're not in control of, of, uh, of, of military units and shit like that. This is a top-down system. It's always controlled from above and, you know, small council type thing, right? That's mm-hmm. what a, uh, uh, well, people are, are, it's the same concepts, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, one of the comments that uh, we had over here has to do with how we constantly talk about problems and not really talking about solutions. I think at well, least genetic, one example... Genetic engineering was brought up, sorry. Oh, no, 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 that's that's definitely part of the conversation. But as far as the solutions to maybe not the genetic engineering part of it, because that's like, oh, like, hell if I know. But if we're just talking about community building, things of that nature, it would be good to, you know, get a little bit of uh, get a little bit of uh, inspiration as far as what I could be done. I definitely think people should be more civically active. I think most people are not really aware of what's going on in there. Mm-hmm municipality or their city or the you know and 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 their actual influence over at least the small scale of things you can change things in your in your society if you really want to especially with uh, you know friends and family people that actually care you know you can show up numbers mean something um and uh you know there's there's lots of ways i think to um you know apex talks about this all the time you can you can you can build within you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be a, uh, a, a, you don't have to make a new, you know, a new uh, it, it, a town. Like it, you can do things, you know what I mean? You, you have agents. So uh, a lot of, I think the, the, the way people feel 
currently is driven by that fact is that they feel like they have no power in their society and they have no, they have no power to change the things that they don't they don't want to see um, and you know I think things like this maybe it's possible for the people to actually make because that's like a big deal like changing human genome that's a big you know, I mean that's not that's not I feel like any person that you talk to about that doesn't matter their level of education <laughs> if you tell well they're going to change you know people's genetics like forever potentially you know what i mean like a, like from that like imagine some guy some guy remember he's not a he's not god he's not a he's not an infallible he's some person he he has to go home and he takes his socks off you know what i mean he he has to take a shower he's a person but some guy is going to change the way that human beings are forever potentially with this if this is done wrong you know what I mean? If 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 some if mistakes are made, you know, we just had this whole. Uh, well, I don't know. What, I don't want to demonetize. This is YouTube. Um, yes, please don't. Uh, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. You know what yes. I'm talking about. I know, I know so, what you're talking yes, about. Yes. Sometimes things you spill some milk. You know what I'm saying? And milk spilling is not is not good with very volatile milk. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When, when the so, milk is radioactive. Yeah, so, on the floor. So, sometimes yeah. sometimes the Backstreet Boys get really tired of just sitting around with their large piles of money and they want to go on a world tour. You know, yeah. sometimes the Backstreet Boys just have to go on that world tour and there's nothing we can do about it. But uh, I want, okay, before we go to uh, the last uh, question, which for me would be, uh, Huntsman, what would your recommendation be? of uh, certain maybe overlooked things that all of us who are watching this right now, who are listening to this, uh, by the way, we do have audio as well. We are on all the major platforms. We are on um, Apple. We are on Spotify. I'm going to send those links right now. Don't you worry. But anyway, when it comes to any of that kind of overlooked things that people can do within their community, I would love to hear that. But before that... Apex and Remus, any final questions about China? Anything that you've ever wanted to know having to do with uh, having to do with like the uh, shipping situation, the situation with the Navy, logistics, any of this stuff? Uh, right now is the opportunity. So uh, just any final questions regarding China? Go. Damn, that's a big that's a big topic. Uh, I'm I'm good, honestly. I uh, the the conversation earlier was really thorough, so I appreciate uh, Huntsman coming on. Excellent. Yeah, so, it's been great. So there we have it. So then Huntsman, I guess the last question would be, uh, what are some overlooked things that anybody who's listening to this right now can do to help out their community or to create the kind of structure that's going to be much more resilient? I mean, my, my concern is that a lot of the neighbors that are around uh, most people, I'm not sure. I don't want to put on rose-colored glasses about how it was in the past, but... I just think people are a little bit out of it today. Maybe it's just my impression, but it doesn't feel as stronger, uh, cohesive, at least according to depictions of how it was in the past. And that's another thing, like you can do only so much yourself, but as far as the other people in their community, you know, like they're just going to be on their iPhones. So I don't know. Is there any, is there any light at the end of the tunnel as far as something that could be done to fix that or not even related to that or something, something out of the blue that people just aren't considering. I think for most people, right. Um, 
when I look at when I look at the disconnect between the boomer millennial thing, right? The boomers remember growing up in a world where everything was analog for the most part. Uh, certainly human to human behavior was very analog driven. If you wanted to see somebody, you had to get in a car, get on your bike or walk and go see them. If you wanted to see a film, couldn't do it at home. You had to go to the movie theater, right? And and you hear about these and we hear about the halcyon days of before there were cell phones and computers and all these things and how great it was and, and how the kids today are ruining everything, right? And then you have like the millennials and, and Gen Z, the Zoomers, whatever. I don't really give a crap about generational labels, but we, we do we do have a fundamental difference that has transpired. And, and I'm at, at 37, I'm at the very forefront of that, right? Whatever the centennials will be or whatever, where I came of age at a time, 10, 11, 12, 15 you know, 18 years old when technology was just starting to become a, a way or a main way in which people begin to coordinate and facilitate their social lives and their, and their professional lives. There, there is no world now for a lot of people who are 20, 25, whatever, where they did not grow up in a paradigm where anything they want to know, anybody they want to talk to, any need that they have at some level socially or pragmatically to fulfill they can't get done from a device in their hand or at least from a computer. And in a lot of ways, we're still cavemen brains and cavemen, emotional uh, frameworks that are operating in with space age technology. And we still haven't figured out how to handle that. And that's okay. That's part of the sort of iterative process. But what, what I think still in some ways grounds me and connects me to reality is the fact that at some point the phone gets turned off, at some point the computer goes away or whatever, and I go outside and I play catch with my kid. Or I have to go mow the yard. Or I go for a run or I go to the gym or whatever it may be. And it's it's just me and physics and me and reality and me and meat space, right? So the if there is a way in which we meet our needs, I guess what I encourage people by if there's a way in which we meet our needs from a digital perspective, balance it to whatever extent you can with the physical. I still, I don't have to go to the grocery store like, and, and go walk and browse the aisles and things like that if I want something, right? I don't have to buy from a butcher. All right, but three days ago, I drove an hour and a half away to pick up 600 pounds of meat and a bunch of coolers and bring it home in my truck because it meant more to me to inconvenience myself, but to go give another human being a couple grand of money for providing a very valuable service that, that produced high quality product and met my needs. I could have gone to the store. I could have ordered it from Amazon, right? Or Uber Eats. I don't know. I've never used Uber, Uber Eats, whatever. Maybe I'm a boomer in that regard. But for the most part, when I have a choice between dialing up a service on my phone to meet my needs or get my ass out in the world and doing it myself to the extent that I can. I don't buy herbs at the store. I, I, I grow them, right? I, can, I don't have the ability where I live to have my own cattle, but I do pay somebody to do that for me. And I go connect with them on a person-to-person level at least, which is not great, but it's still better than connecting with the meat counter at my grocery store, right? Or the meat, you know, the wall of meat at Kroger. So to the extent that you can, to the extent that's reasonable and functional, find excuses and find ways to fulfill your needs in a little bit more analog way, to communicate and connect in a more analog way, and to understand the ways in which 
these supply chains and these mechanisms by which we meet our needs are influenced by us and the extent to which they influence us. And if you can find ways to mitigate that impact or at least decentralize it and localize it as much as you can, because the computer's not going to be there for you. At the end of time, if we all had a nuclear apocalypse and there's like 800 people surviving, we ain't going to have computers, but we will still have each other to survive. So being able to know how to do those things and being able to still meet your needs in a real way, in a robust and resilient way, I'm a huge advocate for that. And I think that does a lot to fix a lot of these other issues we think we have that maybe we don't have, that maybe we just not need to worry so much about buying the next electronic or where it's going to come from, but we need to worry about how do we keep our family and to keep our country and our communities safe and secure. I, don't that know. Is, I, I know that's like me on my philosophical moral soapbox or whatever, but no, we need that. Um, we need that I, stuff. I we need to yeah, hear I mean, it. That influences my views on supply chains. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. absolutely. And uh, before we go, I just want to say, well, a couple of things. Number one, we did have a super chat from Cream Wizard, but because of the YouTube algorithm, I don't think I'll say exactly what he wants to do to the boomers. But either way, <laughs> not a big fan of the boomers. But by the way, imagine, imagine just, if you will, if you had an actual Cream Wizard, how much money you'd save on dairy. No need for cows. <laughs> No need for the dairy industry. Just have a cream wizard. So the cream wizard would produce the cream for you in the morning, you know, just like in the kitchen table. It's like, oh, here's my cream. Does he produce milk as well? <laughs> I think it's just cream, <laughs> but you could probably... The dairy industry is still... You could, well, no, you could reverse... Can, can't you reverse engineer cream into milk? Or no? Or is that it? Is that the point well, of no return? It's from dairy industry. <laughs> Well, I'm sure they're Rev all connected. just going to be staring at soup like, all right, get <laughs> back into the meat, please. Isn't Cream Wizard just a Pearl Jam cover band? <laughs> I have no idea. Anyway, guys, listen. Okay, now I want to say, Huntsman, it was a great pleasure to have you on our show. I really Thanks appreciate it. Guys, follow Huntsman on Man. Uh, what is that dash? That's a dash, right? Man, well, that's like an underscore, whatever. Underscore, yeah, underscore. Yes. Figured out. Well, we definitely overscored with having a, an amazing, high quality guest like you today, Huntsman. So please, twitter.com slash man underscore integrated. Follow Huntsman on Twitter. Uh, check out, and you have a um, you have a Substack as well. So, oh no, you have a Medium. So that's Medium. I have a Medium. I'm, yeah, I'm building a Substack. I haven't pimped it out or anything like that because I. I want to make sure it's like a thing that adds value and that I do it right. Um, I've never really given a shit about monetizing anything I say. Um, I, I just, I don't, you know? And, and in fact, I think the more, the more you're paid to say a thing, the more likely you are just to keep doubling down on the same stupid thing instead of saying stupid things because you actually believe them, which is where I'm at in my life right now. I say a lot of stupid things, but I, I like legitimately believe in them, whether they're stupid or not. Um, but being paid to say stupid things is also, I think, like way worse than doing it for free. So, but uh, th there will be a Substack eventually, but it's going to be like mostly free and super dirt cheap and basically a basically a paywall to like my real world expertise if you want to do that. So <laughs> that's really all it is. I am looking forward to that. And by the way, I love the fact that you said that quote because it reminds me of this uh, panel from JoJo. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, JoJo lore, but my favorite uh, panels of all time. I'm not, but that's totally that. that I 100% will own. I believe it. Uh, 100% will own that 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 is how I operate. <laughs> like, I mean, I believe what I believe, and I'm like, I'm dumb enough and reckless enough to like put my shit out into the air. But 
you know, at the same time, I, I tend to have a pretty, at least strong, well-reasoned reason for saying the stupid shit I say. It's just that most people may not agree with it. So, um, wait, and before, yeah. before, before we go as well, I'm just curious, are you in any way into any manga, anime, anything of that sort or different, different, uh, upbringing, different generation, or I don't know. I think it's, I, I think it's a generational thing, man. Like I, I loved, I followed all of what you may consider traditional nerd pursuits, right? Growing up, like I was in the comic books and can still speak uh, at least about a certain time frame of both Marvel and DC comics, uh, you know, at some, at some length about why I love them, but, uh, you know, Legos, all that stuff. But I think the, the manga as to some extent, kind of the, the, the art form that it has evolved into separate from distinct from, but still similar to comic books wasn't as much of a, a thing that I had available to me growing up. Hmm. Um, but I, you know, I certainly do see the appeal of it. And, and as a guy that, you know, grew up on Batman and Superman and all the other stuff, it's, uh, I, I certainly respect it for what it is, which is a really kind of unique art form in a lot of ways. So yeah, it is cool. It's just not it something I'm would have been if you had like had a Japanese friend, like, that would be the only way for you to get <laughs> any manga. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. You know? I think the, the main swing of that, I think really has only been in maybe the last like 10 or 12 years. Right. So, uh, it's, it, but it is cool to see. And I love that people are like the more choices people have to pursue things that like entertain them and make them happy. I'm, I'm totally good with that. Mm. And now, and I also think that a lot of manga teaches positive uh, lessons to kids, unlike a lot of the American-made animation today. Not all of it, but uh, when it comes to just uh, fortitude, being able to rely on one's inner power to accomplish certain things, you know, it's very different from the kind of cultural milieu that I think a lot of kids today are growing up with the animation uh, they're being brainwashed with. So hopefully, yeah, like, yeah, incredibly, it's incredibly dark. Always. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, so, so I would definitely. I would. Suit. Child soldiers. That's the plot. Literally, child soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would definitely recommend if you ever want to get into it, I'll get you in contact with Remus. He'll hook you up with uh, all the manga you'll ever need. Oh, yeah, I, I got. I, I got. All right. Oh, and Lisa. Lisa Bode asks, uh, "What is what is your favorite dish?" That's the last question. What is your favorite dish? If I say Kung Pao chicken, is it going to like confirm that I'm like a CCP asset in the U.S.? <laughs> well, no, because that's American. That, that's American Legit- Chinese. Like legitimately, like like biscuits and gravy is my everything. That's like the foundation. When I had some fried chicken or a pork chop or some fried potatoes or whatever, great. But biscuits and gravy by itself, that's my deal. Well, oh, speaking of chicken, this is this is what I'm going to be eating afterwards. I'm going to be eating this. I'm going to be eating. That's cold uh, by now, dude. No, it's, I'll, I'll heat it up in the microwave. It's fine. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna eat the salad <laughs> over here. Look at look at all these greens. Look how green my salad is. So uh, green. we can't see them. I'm probably gonna go air fry some chicken wings and drown them in hot sauce. And this, this so. is my and this is my broccoli over here. Look how green this broccoli is. So <laughs> the greenest. All right. So Invisible with that broccoli. Exactly. Uh, yes. Okay. So with that, guys, please subscribe, subscribe, and keep subscribing to break the rules. We definitely need your support to keep growing. And also patreon.com slash break the rules. Exactly how I say it. Patreon.com slash break the rules. Go there. 
or B Square. I appreciate the ever-loving heaven out of all the people who tune in, watch this. No chiggis, Bob. I'm not going to stop. Anyway, that is it. This is the end of the show. Thank you very much, Rigid Fan, um, uh, Chigsikob, Tom Tom, Lisa Bode, PCSS, Cream Wizard, my favorite of all time, Rigid Fan. I already said that, but I'll say it again because why not? Uh, let's see who else we got. Uh, Cuck McNeilberg, the first. So, oh, first. Oh. First of his generation. Great. Don't get a twist. Don't get a twist. Uh, Corn the first Cob. First of his name. <laughs> first of his name. Uh, Corn Cob. That's it. 36. Uh, let's see. S's. Oh, I love S's. Uh, up there in Canada. Uh, pick through. And I think we got, uh, let's see. Yeah, all the rest here. I already said before. So again, guys, thank you so much for watching. Be sure to subscribe. I'm ending this right now. Oh, and also, hold on. Hold on. I am making a big mistake because I did not pimp out uh, Kalth Lives. That's first of all. So guys, okay, follow Kalth. Follow Kalth on Twitter. Bro, and of course... I apologize for my tardiness. Ah, oh, don't worry about it at all. Uh, we we can all be a little bit tardy sometimes. So here we go. Apex Simaps. Uh, follow Apex on Twitter as well, and be sure to subscribe to apexnotes.substack.com. And you know what? While I'm at it, twitter.com/levpo. L E V P O. Follow me on Twitter and also youtube.com slash levpoliakov. You guys don't know, maybe, maybe some of you know, maybe some of you don't. I'm I'm an animation director. I make animation. So BTR is something that I'm growing right now, and eventually I hope to integrate the BTR audience with the animations that I'm going to do when we're going to be raking in the big bucks. We're going to be raking in the dough thanks to your support. But check out my animations on youtube.com slash levpoliakov. Check out Only Love. Check out Fantastic Plastic. Check out that weird Pokemon thing I did with Ronda Rousey. So anyway, guys, oh, thank you very much. Thank you. So this is it. This is the end of the show. This is just me stalling for time while I find the link that I have to press on YouTube to end it. But again, everybody subscribe. I love the fact that you guys are all watching this. And please keep at it. Keep being here. We're only going to grow from here. Uncle Doomer on Monday with Brittany Venti and with uh, MK Ultra Money. It's going to be a great show. I'm really looking forward to it.